Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and as always, I am joined by the man that rumour has it is seven feet tall, kills men by the hundreds and consumes the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. It's Greg. How are you today, uh, Greg? Incredibly accurate description there. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I mean, I'd heard the rumours, but I, I couldn't believe it when I, I was like, that's just exactly Greg. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good, thank you. I'm very good. Um, Not to date this episode much but enjoying the Euros at the moment and yeah everything's very good yep I watched um, obviously I watched Scotland and England on uh, on Friday the 18th of June um, but the night before I watched Denmark play Belgium that was in the meat cracking game did you watch that? no I didn't actually I missed that ben, uh, Denmark-Belgium game it must be one of the few games I didn't watch and I can't remember why I didn't watch that I think Denmark scored the quickest goal of the tournament so far in, in a minute 40 they were obviously it was a bit of a tender game for them after the events of the Finland game and they were all over Belgium for the first half and it almost felt like Belgium were just sort of letting them be all over them well, it, after the second half started, it felt like Belgium had just <laughs> let them have the first half because they felt a bit sorry for them. Because in the second half, they just took them to absolute pieces. And they, and Belgium scored two goals that were, that Ali McCoy described as the sort of goals that get scored on FIFA on the PlayStation. <laughs> 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 so, and of course, McCoy would know all about that after his beautiful goals that he scored in a shot they at glory. Indeed. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, to let a bit of light in upon magic, as always, we do record these episodes slightly in advance. So, we are just off the back of uh, a wonderful weekend that the Tartan Army had in London, and we've been seeing over the newspapers all of the the activities and joy that they've been getting up to, and it. Oh, Greg, would you not have just killed to have been I'd there? I'd have loved to have been there. And even though it was absolutely pissing down with rain on uh, Friday in London, I would still have loved to be there. Uh, one of my colleagues, because the company I work for, which is a restaurant company, is all I'll say, have, we have some restaurants in London. And uh, apparently all the Scotland fans, not all the Scotland fans, but a big group of Scotland fans came into the restaurant when it opened on Friday morning uh, and bought all the Estrella. Like, all the Estrella that they had because... <laughs> <laughs> they could, they could, you can take it out and uh, just totally cleared them out. <laughs> <laughs> first thing in the morning but yeah I mean the some of the videos that have been doing the rounds on WhatsApp and Instagram have just been I mean I literally I must have spent the whole day on Friday with just like an ear to ear smile not least because my mm. daughter turned 13 that's obviously a joyous occasion too <laughs> but um, yeah the, the sort of late afternoon well it was late afternoon here because uh, I'm in Dubai and we're three hours ahead of the UK but the videos were just coming in thick and fast like I got a couple on Thursday night which were quite funny but the ones that were coming on Friday <laughs> were just another level absolutely brilliant oh you could see the fans were really enjoying themselves and as you say some of the videos are just fantastic and some of the reactions especially after the game that we've been seeing on Twitter and I think Andy Murray got in a bit of trouble for his tweet yeah. I think from uh his English supporters. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was phenomenal to be able to see, but yeah, the, the Tartan army in full voice. And of course, we've seen quite a few videos of them enjoying themselves in the streets. But what was so nice to see was the next day, them all, all out with bin bags and, and clearing up the carnage that they had yeah. caused. Who else does that? I know, exactly. Nobody does that. I mean, I had to laugh. They, one of the first videos that I saw on Thursday was one of the ones 
where they had put all the fairy liquid in the fountain at Leicester Square. And a, a few of the guys were in there and um, the, the rest of the fans were sort of jumping about and singing. And the police are there. But it's like, and like there's Scotland fans, like they've got their arm around the police officer's shoulders and all that and patting them in the back and everything. And the police must be thinking, I feel like we should be arresting people here, but they're just all too nice. <laughs> Try to coax the guys out the fountain rather than just sort of roughly dragging them out and all that. <laughs> I did see one video of of that, and it was a guy that had jumped in the water in his you know full kilt, and he was wearing a pair of Louboutin trainers, and you could tell by the red sole. <laughs> And he'd dived into the fountain just head first. Like, that fountain can't be that deep. No. So you'd have to be quite careful yeah, when you're diving yeah. in. Somehow, they managed to get in touch with this guy's mother. And she delivered a quote to the newspaper that said, He's a wee fanny. <laughs> this is a boy that's supposed to be going to uni to study for a degree. I'm not sure where he gets this craziness from. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, I am so glad because we've seen a few videos, especially the one guy who had a, a bit of a fondness, like our friend that used to um, frolic in front of Little John's window. Yeah. He had a fondness for getting naked and getting his, his cock out. And uh, there must have been about, what, five, six videos yeah. of him doing the rounds, including him doing the worm on the tube with his kilt on <laughs> the and, then, and diving in naked into the water and stuff. <laughs> uh, God, I'm so glad social media and camera phones weren't around in the days when we were kind of of that age and getting up to things like that. Well, I was talking to my boss today um, about the game. He ne- he never saw it, but he, he was talking about the last time Scotland played England in the Euros uh, at Wembley with, with Gaza and uh, Gary McAllister and everything. And he said that, because he lived in London at the time, and the fans traditionally all congregate in Trafalgar Square. But on this occasion, all the like the little kind of mini markets and off-licenses around that area had all been told not to open so they couldn't sell booze to the travelling uh, Tartan army. But my boss, he lives in North London, and he still lives in North London when he's not out here in the Middle East, but he got a call. He was going down anyway, they had tickets for the game, and they said, oh, look, all the shops are shut. And then he opened up by you. So he went to Tesco and bought four slabs of cans of lacquer and took them on the tube from North London up to Trafalgar Square to his base. <laughs> Almost a hundred cans just handing them out in Trafalgar Square to all the travelling supporters. But you know, I thought you'd be, you'd be if there was if social media had existed then, he'd be a national hero. That guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> my old boss. Without a doubt. And I think you, you forget some of these things. I was watching uh, obviously in the build up to the Euros. The BBC had quite a few programs on, and I watched the one. I think it was Scotland's Best Away Days or or something like that, and presented by uh, Stuart Cosgrove in. Tam Cowan. And it detailed, I can't remember, 10 or 15 of kind of the best Scotland away fixtures or atmospheres. And I was watching this and my wife was kind of in the background and she was kind of half watching. Mm. And she was so surprised. She said to me, your fans are amazing. Like, they're so well behaved. They're just loved everywhere they yeah. go. I, I, I didn't think it was like that at all. I, I thought you were hooligans. I was like, what? No, that's... Now, not to cast on the England fans, but they did have a reputation for a while. They, they seem to have gotten a lot better 
as years have progressed. But I think by association, yeah. maybe some people think Scottish fans like that. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like at France 98, they gave the Fair Play Award to the Scotland fans. That's how amazing they were. It's the first time, the only time that's ever happened. And it's just, uh, it's so great to see, mm-hmm. you know, everyone just enjoying themselves and behaving and, and just having a party atmosphere and that's what it's about it's about having a party and enjoying yourself and hey it's been 23 years yeah, let us enjoy I ourselves no not a water cannon in sight with <laughs> scotland fans are no around town thankfully yeah. no we're welcome wherever we go oh fantastic um okay so i guess that covers uh, scotland so uh, shall we have a look at what's been happening in the news this week <laughs> This is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. Okay, we're going to have a little bit of a condensed news this week. Rather than two stories each, I think we're going to go for one because we have quite a large subject matter to cover in terms of the the key piece of Scottish media that we're going to be looking at this week. And we don't want to bore you with a, a, a massively long episode. So, Greg, have you seen anything in Scotland this week that has caught your eye? Uh, I have. So, this is a real sort of human uh, story. You, have, I'm sure, like everyone else, you'll have seen occasionally videos pop up, sort of viral videos on social media of seagulls maybe kind of wandering into, like, the spa <laughs> and stealing a bag of crisps or some sort of snack and wandering back out again. They wait until the sliding doors are activated by a someone big enough to activate them and they go in and it's all very funny and we all have a good laugh at the seagulls and their cheeky wily ways but there's there's a human side there's a human cost to the uh, sneakiness of seagulls Elgin well you and I have lived in Aberdeen we live in the northeast of Scotland seagulls are a big part of the scenery up in that part of the world um, I think the people in Torrey have a sort of local myth that the seagulls all carry the souls of fishermen lost at sea obviously it's complete bollocks but that's what they believe (laughs) so in Elgin they're having a real problem with seagulls Elgin for those of you who might not be familiar is also in the northeast of Scotland although it is further north than Aberdeen the headline is from the Press and Journal on the 16th of June and it says it's a quotation uh, you have no idea how cunning they can be gulls adapting to mount resistance to Elgin's fight back so clearly the people of Elgin fear some sort of like seagull apocalypse um, it reads I won't read the whole article so it's quite long I'll just read the funniest bits so after years of growing concerns about noise at all days of all hours of the day, unsightly mess and menacing swoops that have led to injuries. A fight back against seagulls has now been launched in Elgin. Specialist crews have been spending months clearing hundreds of nests from rooftops to reduce the size of a new generation of birds taking flight this year. However, climbing ladders and fending off intimidation from the gulls is only part of the problem as personnel also adapt to the cunning guile of the crafty species. So this is Rob Teasdale, who works for Specialist Vermin Control. Uh, he's, there's, a, there's a picture of him removing a seagull nest in an area of Elgin called Little Canada. Uh, Rob says, Gulls are horrendously smart, and they're cunning as well. You have no idea how cunning they can be. They've grown to realise that people go up and take their nests and eggs away. So what they do now is, they lay two eggs, they wait ten days, and then they lay their third. They can only, they can only lay three a season. So <laughs> they're keeping one back just 
just in case. Some people still put false eggs down, but the seagulls are too smart for false eggs. They just kick them out, and then another gull will come along and use the same nest, and the householders will wonder why there are baby chicks. They work in tandem when the kids go and lunch at school, with one going high, then another coming low when the child drops the food. So what he's meaning there, and I have seen this happen in Aberdeen, like the Robert Gordon kids take their their, their lunch in the city centre, and I, I did see mm. a, I did see a boy get mugged from his bridey or whatever he was eating one day on um, <laughs> on, on on Belmont Street, and he just sort of stood. Like shocked, staring, and I think it was with our friend Brett. Him and I just sort of stood staring at him, like trying to understand what happened. And Brett was like, "You okay?" And the guy's like, "Did you see that?" <laughs> We're like, "Yeah, um, yeah." It's a it's it's a real problem. Uh, the Press and Journal have <laughs> published a little map entitled Gull Central, and the map shows locations in Elgin where there's lots of nesting gulls, and they've got like little seagulls' heads all over the map. <laughs> so like sort of oh nice. It's a bit like Dad's Army. As if like like Elgin was being invaded by seagulls kind of pushing across the, the, the town of Elgin. So after nearly two decades of pitting his wits against the gulls, this is uh, Rob Teasdale, he's developed a reputation, he thinks, I mean this is fucking, this is ridiculous, Rob thinks that he's developed a reputation among the seagulls with just the sight of his van sparking fear in them. <laughs> he said, they recognise me. We have gone to clients in the past to clean nests and all we do is drive in and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> I've been fouled upon and it smells horrendous. It it's grim. We go to some distilleries and the place just erupts straight away with birds up to 200 or 300 foot in the sky. You can't get close to them. They're not daft by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Rob is quite, like quite, an, quite an amiable fellow. He's wearing like a green company polo shirt and he's got his name like sewn in, says Rob, on his, on his breast. He's got a big bushy beard. So he is quite distinctive. Now, you might be listening to this and thinking, yeah, but aren't seagulls protected? Well, I can tell you that they're only protected after they're born. When they're still eggs, they they can be they can be destroyed. I'm not suggesting you go and do that. Get a professional to do it. I'm sorry if you're an Elgin and you're thinking, well, I don't know why you're laughing at this, Greg, because it's a real problem for us. Um, yeah, I can appreciate that, but it is, you have to admit, if you don't live in Elgin, it's pretty funny, you know. So yeah, have you ever had any unpleasant encounters again uh, with seagulls? I, I can't say I have, but I know they are a big issue, of course, especially in Aberdeen and especially at the football. And yet, Pataudry, there would be seagulls right. going everywhere, Diving. Um, all over the place. Nick your pie at halftime. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, so much so that I think a few years ago, Aberdeen actually employed a hawk. Right. That, so they employed a, a full time uh-huh. hawk that they had in the stadium, and the hawk would fly around the stadium trying to get rid of seagulls. Right and scare them away. I don't think that happens anymore because there was an unfortunate incident involving a seagull and the hawk (laughs) during a match that I think left some children quite scarred. Maybe did a seagull get shredded above the the family stand? Uh, Yeah, and landed on the pitch. Um, So there was a a little bit of an unfortunate incident. So I don't know if the hawk is still in employment at Aberdeen. Obviously not at the moment because there's no fans in the stadium. But yeah, for a while we had a hawk, which is ironic because we have uh, Sammy the seagull is one of our mascots. as well so possibly i don't know yeah possibly that that could be a case uh, but of course yeah th- there is obviously the famous clip of i think it's sam the seagull in aberdeen which was the the little fellow that as you touched upon earlier and it was a uh, the news agents in the castle gate yeah. and there's a, a video of him just nipping into the shop 
grabbing a packet of Doritos <laughs> and coming out and eating the Doritos in the pavement, just pecking them open and, and snacking away at them. And apparently he did it quite a few times. Right. Like It wasn't just a one-off. It was a regular occurrence. He would just nip in. And yeah, they're sneaky little bastards. They'll just <laughs> kind of go in and help themselves. And fair play to them. I don't, I don't mind seagulls. They're kind of, it, it's part and parcel of the... Living by the sea, isn't it? Living in that yeah, area. Living by the sea. Yeah, of course. I mean, You have to expect it. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the seagulls in the northeast of Scotland is that they, some of them can grow quite big. You know, like the quite big wingspans and all that kind of thing. Now, remember, like, it can't have been that long after I moved into Aberdeen City Centre. It was in the summer, and I was walking up Union Street one night, Friday or Saturday night. Really, really nice evening. Like, really, like, unusually nice sort of summer's evening. And I was walking, I can't remember where I was going, but I was heading up, and there was two guys walking the opposite direction towards me, maybe about 20 or 30 metres away. And one of these guys got shat on by a seagull, and it was honestly like somebody had just tipped a like a tin of emulsion over them to me it was fucking just it was like it was like something out of like Funhouse or something like that I could not believe it and he's his mate was stood you know I guess as close to you would stand to somebody if you were walking down the street with him he didn't seem to get touched at all his mate but this guy was he just he just sort of accepted what happened to him and then turned round and headed back in the direction that he came from <laughs> what can you do in that situation? Well, Nothing yeah. at all. Supposed to be lucky, but no, okay, it feels very lucky at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's Elgin's uh, fight back against the impending seagull apocalypse. What have you got this week in your news? Well, this is a story from the Scottish Sun this week, and we actually touched upon something similar to this in, I think it was in the Down Among the Big Boys episode, episode 23, wherever you get your podcast, it's still available. And we told a story about stealing things from pubs and you touched upon a costume getting stolen from Pizza Hut. That's right, yeah. And uh, people were sending postcards. And this is one of those things that does kind of happen often. People steal things and send postcards. Staff at a Scottish cafe have been left bewildered by a bizarre ransom note demanding cheesecake for the safe return of a stolen gnome. (laughs) Uh, The garden ornament was stolen from the Butternut Squash Cafe in Portobello, Edinburgh. The theft took place earlier this month, but yesterday staff discovered a very strange note setting out the culprit's greedy terms. So rather than sending a nice fun postcard or a picture saying they're enjoying themselves somewhere, oh, they've sent a note featuring a picture of a gnome which read, We have your gnome. If you want to see him again, leave two cheesecakes when you shut the cafe. We will be watching. (laughs) For some bizarre reason, the cafe didn't want to give in to the demands, but instead of leaving two pieces of cheesecake, they left two pieces of shortbread outside the cafe, much to the dismay of the kidnappers. Uh, the cafe shared a picture of the shortbread on the Scottish media saying kidnappers your treasure awaits which I thought was fun they're obviously taking part in Mm -hmm. this the thieves were not happy with this and they followed it up with another ransom note which read shortbread we asked for cheesecake you have 24 hours or your gnome gets dusty bin (laughs) and on this note there was a a photo of a gnome all smashed up but it it wasn't the gnome it was a stock photo but still very threatening you know I guess it's like sending a picture of a, a finger or something if if you had a child kidnapped. So uh, the cafe then shared the picture of the note on their Facebook page and said, we will not negotiate with gnome nappers. (laughs) Uh, Customers have been delighted with this. Uh, They've said uh, it was ruthless and lawless with a sweet tooth, a dangerous combination. Uh, Someone said, I hope they don't start sending body parts back to you. (laughs) 
a third person wrote, you've played with fire when you gave them shortbread. They've got you over a barrel now. It's understood the gnome still has not been returned and the thieves are still at large. And I did check earlier today on the Butternut Squash Cafe's Facebook page and there's still no sign of the gnome. So, do we think it's a real kidnapping or do we think it's Butternut Squash Cafe just trying to get a bit of a, a bit of traction online? Possibly, could be. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that until you mentioned it. But yeah, that's a good shout. Yeah. That's a... Uh, that's a good idea. I'm trying to think of other like famous like fake kidnappings. The, the, the only one I can think of is that wee girl in Dewsbury in Yorkshire who his mum said she'd been kidnapped and was, she was at, they were actually hiding her at, at her uncle's house or something like that. Uh, yeah, Greg, keep it light, please. <laughs> like, we're trying to, you know, we're talking about things like a, a cuddly toy or a mascot being kidnapped yeah. and photos from Mallorca being sent. We're not talking about actual... <laughs> kidnapping of Shannon Matthews. Shannon Matthews, like that was her name. Pretty. Was yeah. tip of my tongue. Um, <laughs> Come on, keep it fucking light, man. Come on, Jesus. Yeah. It's meant to be a light-hearted podcast. Yeah, I think, I think that all ended all right. I think it ended okay for Shannon, I think. Not so well for her mum and her uncle, but... Anyway, if you, you've you've never been involved in any gnome napping or anything, no. you weren't involved in the pizza pup uh, kidnapping No, no, definitely not. I'd love to know who that... I can't believe that, that nobody has owned up to that pizza pooch dog napping uh, Aberdeen Frankie and Benny's slash Pizza Hut because I think this all, I think enough time has passed. <laughs> a statue of limitations is is, is is sort of safe, but um, yeah, nobody ever owned up to it. And it was definitely it was definitely one of our guys that did it. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure of it. So a bit of a short news week this week. Then uh, the only other thing I saw, which I thought you would probably like, Greg, was that. I noticed Martin Comston had said that he fell in love with Scotland's new superstar, Billy Gilmore, when he heard him talking about sausages. Oh, really? Yeah, he said that uh, the Chelsea star, who is from Ardrossan originally, referred to it as a roll and slice. And he knew that he was the man for him. He fell in love with him (laughs) when he called it a roll and slice instead of a square sausage. I imagine that's something that's kind of close to your heart oh, yeah. after the debates we've had in the Swally. Oh, it's, it's, it's important to ask the right type of sausage in the west of Scotland. You know, you may end up with do you end up with, with uh, two links when you either wanted a, 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 a square slice? Yeah, I don't know anyone who would rather have a square slice than two. <laughs> that's just my opinion, though. Okay, well, uh, a quick news roundup this week because I think we've got quite a large thing that we're going to be talking about this week. Yeah, it's the 25th episode of The Swally. So we decided that we should probably do something quite big. And I don't think they come much bigger than what we're going to be talking about today, Greg. So why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about this week? Okay, well, listeners, this week we are going to be talking about Mel Gibson's epic historical war movie from 1995, Braveheart. I'll give you a quick introduction. It portrays William Wallace, for those of you who were perhaps born on the moon and have never seen it, uh, a late 13th century Scottish warrior. The film depicts Wallace's life, leading the Scots in the First War of Scottish Independence against King Edward I of England, or Longshanks, as he's referred to in the movie. The film also stars Sophie Marceau, Patrick McGowan, and Catherine McCormick, and it's based on the poet Blind Harry's 15th century epic poem, The uh, Acts and Deeds of the the illustrious and valiant champion Sir William Wallace. It's adapted for the screen by Randall Wallace who thinks he's related. I suppose he probably is if you go back far enough, right? He's, you know, to be fair to him. So yeah, big movie this week. It's a big movie for the Swally this week. 
Have we ever had anything that we have had? Cosmo. We've had Cox. We've had Norton. <laughs> Who else we had? Had we've had Mullen. Mullen, yeah. That's 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 the big four. I mean, that's what more do you need? <laughs> I, know, I know. And then and then was a few swally, uh, a few actors making their swally debuts. Tommy Flanagan, uh, late of playing Chibs in The Sons of Anarchy, very distinctive looking chap. David O'Hara, although he is playing an mm. is playing an Irishman. Um, and uh, yeah. Well, well, we'll get into sort of character by character, but um, David O'Hara doesn't look like David O'Hara in Braveheart <laughs> at all. He looks completely different. Um, so, what's your memories of this uh, epic? So- okay, so uh, Braveheart. How do you avoid Braveheart? How could you have not seen Braveheart? How could Braveheart not be part of your life in terms of if you were, you know, in Scotland at that time? Um, I I didn't go to the cinema to see this. I think, I mean, it came out in 95, so I would have been slightly... I would have been 14 Uh, and I had that kind of weird thing that until I turned 15 I didn't look 15 if you know what I mean but then I could pass for 18 when I was 16 Mm -hmm. so I I just had that kind of weird stage so I, I didn't go to the cinema to see this but I do vividly remember the first time I watched it and I think it would have been 1996 probably when it came out on VHS and I actually remember watching it with my mum and it must have been about the time of Euro 96 or something. So I was probably even more fired up for the Scotland campaign there. And I remember watching this and just absolutely loving it and then buying it on VHS and probably watching it countless times, which is odd because it's not kind of a massively rewatchable film in that way, but it kind of is. Um, So yeah, watching it a lot and just absolutely loving it. I remember I had the poster on my wall at one point of Braveheart and it's just so ingrained in kind of Scotland and Scottish culture. Amazingly, I can't remember the last time I saw this film. Right. You know, it must be about 15 years at least. So watching it again this week, just everything just just came back and I know we're going to go into so much about this film but it's just it was just like a nice kind of old friend and watching something so familiar despite having not seen it for so long and I still welled up I still had swelling of pride and oh yeah it's just a a great film I mean what about yourself what's your first memories of of Braveheart and kind of watching it for the first time and and memories of it well I I did see it at the cinema Um, I was 17 when it came out Uh, it was was released in the UK in September uh, 1995 a few months after it was released in the US bizarrely it came out in the US in May 95 you'd have thought that you know but this was like the days before the internet and stuff so I think films in general were often released like a, a good few months earlier in the UK before they made it to uh, in the US when they made it to the UK. So my mum and I actually oh. went to see it. There was a, do you remember like when a film came out, like a sort of high profile film, they would sometimes have like a kind of half an hour making of on ITV um, or terrestrial telly oh. around about the same time. Yeah. So my mum my, my and I were what we were watching the 10 o'clock news one night and then it was on after the 10 o'clock news. So we we watched it and my mum was like oh we should go and see that at the cinema so I got in from school on the Friday she said I've got us tickets for Braveheart tomorrow it's just you and me you and I will go and see it so we did and it was I don't know if it was the opening weekend or if it had been out for a week 
already. I couldn't say, but what I will say is, is that the cinema was absolutely full. Like, a full mm. house in the cinema. Um, it was the Odeon in Aberdeen in the city centre we went to watch it at. Mm-hmm. And watching it with like a yeah, I know it's a bit weird like watching. Yeah, I suppose if you if you if you kind of condense a cinema experience, it's watching a movie in the dark with a load of strangers. <laughs> but it was just it was awesome. It was just like a really great feeling. Obviously on the big screen, I remember not for whatever reason not being quite prepared for the violence, which mm. at the time you know, and I think it's I, th- I still think it's aged pretty well. The violence, to be fair, it's, it's, it's still it, it, it still looks like largely. Con- there's one or two wee bits that look a bit dodgy but for the most part it's largely convincing but I remember I was a wee bit squeamish about realistic injuries and stuff like I used to hate my mum used to love casualty and uh, you know remember, remember casualty was obviously some horrendous accident um, before oh yeah or accidents. Some of those accidents have still stuck with me. In fact, one in particular has stuck with me for a very long time in casualty. And yeah, it's one of those yeah. things you always remember. So I admit, so yeah, I wasn't really quite prepared. And the first, you know, like the scene where he goes to get his revenge on the sheriff for the murder of uh, Morin. And, you know, like he, he's sort of hitting guys with a mace and that's sort of thing. Mm. But then he gets hold of a sword and he cuts he cuts one of the soldier's legs off at the knee. <laughs> and I remember, I mean, every time I see that, and I, I'm like you, I hadn't watched the film. I hadn't watched the film all the way through for a really, really long time. I think I caught bits of it because it had on television out here in the Middle East. Looking. So I've seen bits and bobs of it over the years. But I like, sat down and watched it and I was just jolted right back to that scene in the cinema when that guy got his leg cut off and thinking, oh, this is just a start of it. And I, I knew, like, I knew a little bit about Wallace because my, my papa, my dad's dad, is from Stirling and he used to take me to the Wallace Monument when I was a kid and the Stirling Castle and the Bannockburn and stuff. So I knew I, I knew about the Battle of Stirling Bridge. So I knew that there was at least one big battle coming up <laughs> in the movie. Mm. But yeah, no, it was brilliant. It was a really nice, uh, really nice experience going and, uh, going and seeing it with my mum. And, you know, again, it's like, it really, when I think back to, the cinema when I was a kid and what I sort of fell in love with about going to the cinema it was just it's that experience of watching a really good film that everybody around you even though you don't know them enjoys and I, th- I think I think people might have clapped at the end which is quite a, it's quite an unusual thing for the British yeah. for like Scottish or British cinema audiences to clap a movie you know that's very rare actually yeah, yeah you don't see that very often no. I can't think of uh, a time that I've, I've been uh, a UK cinema and people have clapped pretty sure Braveheart I think they've Maybe another film that I saw, like another sort of sprawling epic type movie that provoked a round of applause at the end, but I can't remember what it was. So, yeah. I think we should also say from the outset that in terms of Braveheart, it was voted the second most historically inaccurate movie of all time. Now, get a fucking life. It's not a documentary. It's a piece of entertainment. Okay, so we might cover some of this on the episode. We know the fact that Wallace was a landowner and Mm -hmm. was kind of a minor knight in real life. He wasn't a poor villager. We know that kilts and face painting and some of the battle tactics aren't accurate. We know that Robert the Bruce was actually Braveheart, not Wallace. We know all of this. We know that the the Queen Isabella was, uh, Princess Isabella was like nine years old at the time or five years old. Depends which thing you read. We know it it's all bollocks. It's not a documentary. <laughs> it's a piece of entertainment. Yeah. And you can't take that away from me. <laughs> I don't care. Um, I watched this with my wife last night and she had seen it before, but years ago. Right. And she'd completely forgotten most of what happened. So I mean, as we go on and discuss the film, I will let you know some of the nuggets that she came out with. <laughs> and and 
things that you know. But it's difficult trying to explain to someone, you know, as we started, I, I did say that this, you know, a lot of this didn't happen. It's kind of, it is a bit inaccurate. But of course, as you're going on and she's asking things and she's saying, so it did happen. I was like, well, yeah, actually, when you kind of boil down to it, most of this did happen and most of the characters are real. It's just kind of grab bits and pieces from different places. They, but a lot of it did happen and it, you know especially his spoiler alert you know when you come to the end and what happens there mm-hmm. that was one of the gripes that i read in terms of his um his execution was much more graphic than they they did in the film oh, for fuck's sake what what are you want you want to actually show it in the film uh, you know it, oh but it involved emasculation and that's uh, we'll come back to that that's one thing that i was kind of like oh is that what happened i always thought it was something else but is that what they're doing at the end We'll come back to that anyway. Uh, but yeah, so it was wonderful to watch it as well through someone else's eyes and see things. But as you say, the graphic violence, I'd, I'd quite forgotten mm. how bad some of the, the parts are. And I did watch an interview with Mel Gibson on Jay Leno, and he did say about the violence. And I, I think they had to cut a fair bit out to, to get it. So I, I think it was much more graphic than what we've seen well, that's what I was gonna say, in order to get the release. That, that part that you were just talking about, about his execution, I think they did film him have being sort of not being hung drawn and quartered as such but you know that you sort of see he's about to be kind of gutted I think right mm. and I think he did film it but test audiences it was a bit much so he decided to leave it mm. out and just sort of leave it to the imagination apparently there's enough footage for a four hour director's cut and Gibson has said that he, oh. he had G- G- Gibson is on record as saying that if uh, if the studio wanted to to release it he'd be up for going back and editing it so well, he'd be up for anything now wouldn't he <laughs> it's kind of it's a little bit on the slide now yeah, well. I, let's get out of the way yeah. let's talk about Gibson I mean we have to of course I, I believe that he was offered this film and and he did turn it down initially, but then he came back to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, he didn't want to, to actually play William yeah. Wallace initially. Do you know some of the people that were actually considered I know, for the role of William Wallace? I know that Gibson wanted um, Brad Pitt to play Wallace, mm-hmm. uh, which would yeah. this would have been around about the same time as uh, Interview with the Vampire, which I think was Pitt's sort of kind of star maker for him I think that's what kind of made him quite famous in Free the Vampire I think so but that's only one I didn't I didn't see it who else is who else really interested in I mean this could just be internet research the list is apparently that was also considered uh, Jason Patrick oh yes actually I did read that yeah uh, Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> he'd be good he'd be good apparently Liam Neeson was heavily considered yeah. but then did Rob Roy obviously he got Rob Roy which came out in the same year yeah. um, I don't know if this is taking the piss and I think it must be taking the piss. Apparently, Christophe Lambert was considered for the role of uh, of William Wallace. Uh, Jeff Bridges right. was another one. And again, I can't see this. This can't be right. Robin Williams. Oh, for fuck's sake, that's just taking the piss. No way. <laughs> that, must be, that must be taking the piss. But I could see Jason Patrick or Daniel Day-Lewis or even Liam Neeson. Yeah. But yeah, Robin Williams, no. no. I can't see that. No, that was... But that was the list. And obviously he... He decided to come on board. He did uh, go round the houses in terms of trying to get financing because it is partly produced, well, it's produced by Mel Gibson, but his film house, Icon Productions. But he went round quite a few film studios. And of course, one of the film studios, um, I can't remember which one now, it was 20th Century Fox or Paramount. They said to him, yep, we'll fund it if you do Lethal Weapon 4. And he said, no, no, I'm not doing that. No. Ironically, 
four years later, he then went on to make Lethal Weapon 4. Yeah. But yeah, he finally managed to get uh, a couple of film companies to come on board and, and help with the production. I, f- I feel like he did Lethal Weapon 4 more as a kind of favour to Danny Glover because he's their friends, him and Danny Glover. Mm. And I, mean, I think I read somewhere that... Because, like, obviously, they, Gibson is a bit like when we were talking about Sean Connery. Gibson is a, he's a film star. He's a movie star, right? And uh, mm. and obviously, lethal the first Lethal Weapon arguably made him a movie star. And it, mm. Danny Glover's more of a sort of working actor, albeit a very good actor. And I love him as Murta in um, Lethal Weapon. And I love the, the, the back and forth between him and uh, Riggs, played by Mel Gibson. So yeah, I think I did read that um, he did Lethal Weapon 4 more to help out Danny Glover than, um, than any other reason. Obviously, what Gibson has done and said in the after Braveheart, we don't agree with. We're not going to mention that in terms of his career. But in terms of his career beforehand, and as you say, Lethal Weapon, Mad Max, he, yeah. he had a great career. And and this was his second film that he had directed. And you know, he wins Best Director, the Academy Awards. As you said, this film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. And it won five, including Best Picture and Best Director. To talk about the, the Best Picture, uh, that year, I believe it was up against... It was up against Apollo 13, Sense and Sensibility, Babe, and Il Postino. It's a very strange... If you look at that year in film, that was the year Heat came out. Why wasn't Heat nominated for Academy Awards? Why was Babe nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards? Like, no, nothing against Babe, but I wouldn't put it up for Best Picture. Apollo 13, I can see. But yeah, Braveheart won, which was, I think it was quite an outsider as well for winning Best Picture. Yeah, I mean, the the original, the, the early reviews weren't particularly kind to it. You know, like, and Gibson sort of acknowledged that in some of the interviews that he's done since the movie. And he was like... A bit, I said I was a bit nervous because obviously it was a it was a very uh, demanding film to direct and play the lead character in the movie. We put a lot of work into it. We you know we had something we're really happy with, and then suddenly these early reviews are um, not particularly kind to it. But it sort of it's but it's so it sort of comes back. I mean, if I I think it was voted like the, one of the worst films ever to win an Academy Award, which is just yeah. ridiculous to say. I mean, it, it, that. That year, I mean, Sense and Sensibility, I think I have seen it maybe once. Not my sort of film, you know, so I'm not going to say anything against it. I don't think Apollo 13 is a particularly good movie, to be honest. No. It's all right, but it's, you know, I mean, it's based on a true story and not a particularly exciting true story. The spaceship gets in trouble for a few hours, but it all works out well. No one gets their fucking hands chopped off in Apollo 13 or, like, their legs cut (laughs) off at the knee or, you know, or there's no rousing speeches. Um, El Postino, I've never seen... And Babe, I mean, I've seen Babe quite a few times because I've got children um, and, I, and my sisters are like average about nine years younger than me. So I've seen it a few times, both when it came out and in the last couple of years. And it's it's a well put together film and it has some kind of charming moments, but it's a kid's film. You know what I mean? I mean, I can't, yeah. I can't think of any other time that a kid's film has been in the in the category for best picture. So I, I think he, he hugely deserved the best director Oscar, though, in terms of this film is beautifully shot Mm -hmm. and i know it was filmed in in scotland and ireland mostly but some of the sweeping shots and and some of the 
some of the direction it it really is great i mean the the battle scenes are just incredible of of giving that sense of violence like i I think a lot of the the films you see nowadays in terms of maybe blockbusters let's just take the marvel films for example like you know the avengers films if they're having a big battle Mm -hmm. i get a fucking headache or feel sick because it's so so much going on and it's so sweeping and dizzy and everything's cut so much okay in these battle scenes there's a lot of cuts but you see everything that happens you understand your brain can register everything that you've just seen but i do feel in a lot of kind of the the modern day films like that you your brain kind of struggles to take in everything you're seeing but he does a fantastic job of of, you register everything you see there yeah, I mean, I think the like these more recent films depict. I mean, the, there's the, there's obviously there's the big battle at the end of Avengers Endgame, but it's it's all CGI, all CGI. Mm. Those movies kind of need to be seen on a on a on a big screen because if, even like we have got a pretty big TV, and you know we've watched Endgame on the TV as well, and it, you know it's exactly like you say. There's loads going on. It's a bit difficult to kind of focus on and stuff like that. That big battle at the end, but I mean, like the, the the battle scenes in Braveheart, there is no CGI. It's all they, I think they've got for the, the sort of extras uh, for the soldiers they've got the Irish Reserve Army guys they've got them mm. they've got them costumed up and even even the scenes where the English archers are sending over the volleys of arrows Gibson got them to fire the arrows for real and they positioned the camera underneath <laughs> the, so he could kind of, kind of catch them arcing overhead <laughs> which God, I don't think I'd like to have been the cameraman <laughs> Getting into that position um, to do that, but uh, but you know everything is everything. Like, as you say, everything is happening on the screen. Mm. I, well, yeah, that's uh, as I was saying earlier. I saw the interview with him on Jay Leno, and he did say that they put an advert out for amputees, and they were interviewing amputees, and he was like asking on the phone, "Okay, is it your right leg or your left leg that's missing? Uh, we need someone with the right leg missing because that's the shot I've got in mind." And that's you know when you see the guy getting his leg cut off, yeah. that's an amputee. Yeah. It's just had like a, you know, fake leg and they've just sliced it at the right point and comes away. And yeah, it's it's incredible. It's so realistic and really, in terms of you say CGI, the, the one part my, my wife really didn't like uh-huh. with the film was the, the number of horses that get kind of killed or hurt yeah, or yeah. mangled effectively and that was something and i did have to say to her look, look i did read about this no horses were harmed or killed during the filming of this and a lot of the ones they use are kind of like either robots mm-hmm. or like kind of you know, fake horses yeah. so it's it's fine nothing got harmed but my god even i was quite disturbed watching some of that it's 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 tough viewing yeah those scenes i mean that's the thing i remember the most about that making of program that that my mum and I watched before we went to see the film and they were showing how they did the scene at Stirling when the horses ride into the Scottish soldier spikes and it is basically that you say it's sort of it's almost like a sort of you know these kind of bronco machines that you sometimes see in pubs mm. um it's, it's that, yeah. that same sort of thing and, and it, again it's sort of testament to gibson's direction and the editing of the film is that i think the only time there's only one shot in the film where it, it's obviously a fake horse and that's when he jumps out of the castle window and the horse yes and you, and you see the yeah. horse and it's just like a solid object <laughs> kind of falling towards yeah. the water um but in those action shots, it, it looks it looks totally real. And the fact that it's, it's a twenty six year old movie, and mm. you know, like I don't know the last time 
uh, Anka watched it, but it still looks incredibly real to like read re- enough for her to be concerned that horses might have been hurt. I, I think she's seen it once before, but she'd completely forgotten about any of the story because, for in fact, when Mirren gets killed, yeah, she did say, Yeah, but she's not really dead, is she? <laughs> no, she is. <laughs> no, but she can't be, she can't be dead. So, no, she is. So, what? There's not a happy ending in this film. Like, well, there, there kind of is, and there kind of isn't. It depends what way you look at it, but obviously, she forgotten about things so uh, there was the when William comes into the village and the, the Englishman kind of killed the horse and mm-hmm. it, she instantly is like oh no that poor horse I'm thinking oh Jesus wait till you see what's coming up <laughs> yeah. and it, she's very switched on my wife she, she remembers things so she remembered the speech of when they're sitting around and they're saying we're going to build spikes you know and uh-huh. as long as two men well some men are longer than others <laughs> yeah yeah and the um, so when they turn up at the Battle of Stirling, my wife said, uh, "Where are the spikes?" I saw uh, what? Well, they mentioned they were going to build spikes. Where are they? And then you see them kind of carrying them in. She's like, "Okay, what are they going to do with those spikes?" And I'm thinking, "Do I tell her, or do I not?" I chose not to, and she was very upset at what they use the spikes for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very clever in terms of the the way that's done. And yeah, to say the the battle scenes are brilliant, but that that did leave quite a jarring yeah. image on me again in terms of the the horses being killed. Gibson said on the on the battle scenes that filming the battle scenes were was more physically demanding than filming three lethal weapon films back to back. But and that's quite impressive because he does quite a lot of crazy stuff in those lethal weapon films. He does, he does, but he also said that in the movie uh, like nobody, like nobody was injured. Like one guy got got like a bust nose. It wasn't too bad. That was uh, the only injury that anybody sustained. That he was quite pleased with. Like in all the battle scenes that they did, um, that that was the only sort of minor that injury that happened to anybody. Okay, so to talk about the cast, let's talk about the cast. Obviously, we've got Mel Gibson, who we mentioned before, playing the uh, William Wallace. Do you do you mm. think he looks a wee bit like the Ultimate Warrior when he's got his uh, blue face paint on? A wee bit. I never thought about that but you've got a good point there actually maybe a little bit I mean we mentioned what we obviously Mel Gibson's had some some uh, problems uh, shall we say in the last sort of 10 years or so there is there has been suggestions that there could be an element of mental illness involved there and substance and alcohol abuse but we won't make any excuses for him but you know but he when, when he came to do this he had to he had to be possibly like the biggest male movie star in the planet in the mid 90s I'm trying to think who else I, mean, even, even, I don't think even Tom Cruise was as famous at that point I mean he was obviously famous but he wasn't like banging out like a Mission Impossible film every two years and doing all that sort of thing um, I mean it's a very valid point I'm trying to think of, of anyone that would have been kind of that big at that time so I mean would you say that Braveheart is effectively like the the Ben Nevis of Mel Gibson's <laughs> career, like the the, the pinnacle, the, the highest point of his career. I mean, as as a as an actor and director, I mean the, the the other film of his that I like that he directed that he's not in it is um, Hacksaw Ridge, but the Second World mm. War that that was quite a good film. Uh, I never saw Apocalypto because I heard that it no. was. Uh, it was like a bit sort of painful to watch, not in that it's a bad film, just that in that it's pretty graphic violence in it. And the other one that he did was The Passion of the Christ, because he's um mm. he's uh he's 
well, apparently quite a devout Catholic. So that was a, that was a uh, that was a movie close to his heart. Uh, but again, it's it's quite. I mean, I have seen the Passion of the Christ, and the whole sort of oh. crucifixion and torture of Jesus is is hard to watch. You know what I mean? So he, he's 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 got a theme in his movies. I would say the the execution of Wallace is almost like a a kind of yeah first draft of the Passion of the Christ. Well, the, the torture scene for Christ. It's it's very similar in a way. Hundred percent. I mean the the imagery. I mean, he is he is tied to a cross um, mm, for yeah. the for the disemboweling uh, scene. Um, so the imagery and all that, and sort of silhouetted against the sky and whatnot. So for sure, you know, he's he's uh, he's he's having a bit of he's flexing his artistic uh, muscles there for sure. But yeah, I mean, like, and the, th- the thing is, I remember when the film came out, there was quite a lot of stick for Mel's accent. But see, this time watching it now, maybe it's just because I've just watched Robert Duvall try to do a Scottish accent and it shot at glory <laughs> but um i was watching it and i was thinking do you know what his scottish accent's not terrible no wait a minute disclaimer you said you thought robert duval's accent was pretty good in a shot at glory and in, in parts I think I said that. No, you no. <laughs> don't make me rewind the episode. You said you thought his episode, his accent was great. I thought it was terrible. Oh, okay. Um, Gibson's accent in this, I, uh, there's a couple of tiny bits that it kind of wavers a bit. Yeah. But it that's it, and it, otherwise it, it's pretty good. Yep. Yeah. Like in terms of, I I would say actually I'll come back to that. There's one accent that slips a couple of times as well. It's yeah. not Gibson's. Um, but but it's understandable why it slips. But yeah, I, I thought his accent was pretty good. To give him his due as uh, as an actor in this movie, if you think about the stuff that he did before uh, and the sort of stuff that he did after as an actor, so obviously there's the other weapons that we spoke about, sort of wisecracking, good-looking action star. He did um, Forever Young. I think that was his other one he directed, which is a sort of romantic sort of drama. No, you know, it was... Um, Man Without a Face. Was direct, it was Man Without a Face right. was his direct... Direct, uh, I always get them, directorial debut. I always get them mixed up, but both movies are quite sort of romantic yeah. melodrama. There's Air America with Robert Downey Jr. Again, a great film, but wisecracking. You know, got all the answers. And then after Braveheart, I mean, that's not all of Mel Gibson's. Obviously, his biggest, his big, my favorite Mel Gibson will always be his Mad Max. You're not giving any love for Bird and a Wire with Goldie Hawn. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've never ever seen it. I don't think I've seen it anyway. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I will agree with you on uh, yeah, it's Mad Max, yeah. a lethal weapon. Like the Mad Max is just incredible. The stuff he does after he does Ransom, which again, sort of dramatic, quite a good film. That's a great, give me back my son. Yeah, it's a great film. It's a good film. But I, I'm, I'm not. I just mean the sort of how he stretches himself. I don't think he really stretches himself as an actor in anything before or after Braveheart. You know what I mean? It's. Mm. You know, it, a, a film of his that I love, that I was just thinking about when I was watching Braveheart, thinking I need to watch that again for so long, is Payback. That's, you know, the one where he's uh, he's just trying to get his money back and he's uh, mm. Lucy Liu's in it and uh, Chris Christopherson's in it. It's based on a an old Lou Marvin movie called uh, Point Blank. It's mm-hmm. just like a proper revenge film. Uh, he's like a yeah. criminal who's been wronged. I love that film and I think he's absolutely brilliant in it. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think Braveheart is probably where he... Really really stretches himself as an actor. And, you know, his Scottish accent, I mean, I, I think it's good. It's a good accent. Yeah, it's a good accent. I would agree with you on that. I think it's good. 
And then next, this is in no particular order, right? So this this next actor, I thought up until very recently, and by that I mean when I was doing my research for the podcast, Angus McFadden, despite his um, perhaps the most Scottish of names, <laughs> I always thought that he was English because his Sc- no. his Scottish accent in Braveheart, I don't think is very good. But he, he was actually no. born in Glasgow, but he was raised all over the world because his father was uh, like a military doctor or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know about... I mean, I, I've got to be honest, like, I don't particularly like him in the part and I don't particularly like that portrayal of uh, Robert the Bruce. You know what I mean? No, I don't either. And I had to... That was one thing I had to kind of explain to my wife as well in terms of like, this doesn't happen, especially when he betrays William at the Battle of Falkirk. Yeah, yeah. It's not a great portrayal. And I agree with you. His accent is a bit off. Yeah. It does sound a bit English yeah. when he's talking. Yeah. He's okay, but he doesn't... You're right, actually. Now I think about it, he probably is the weak link yeah, in the yeah. film in terms of his acting portrayal because everyone else in this is incredible. Did you know that he's just played the part again? I did because that's the the sequel that they've. It, it's an unofficial. Sequel, yeah, yeah. I believe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I, I've, I was going to really look for it and see if anybody watch it. I don't think it got a very big. It came out in two thousand and nineteen. I think it's just called mm. the Bruce. Um, it didn't get a very big yeah. distribution. The most recent portrayal of Robert the Bruce is Netflix's The Outlaw King, where uh, Chris Pine of Star Trek and Wonder Woman plays Robert the Bruce. And actually, I don't know if you're planning to watch this anytime soon. Pretty good film. His Scottish accent is better than Mel Gibson's. It's really, really good. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's I, I have not watched The Outlaw King, but I, you should maybe a, I should. You should give it a watch. watch. Yeah, soon. It doesn't have the kind of rousing sort of notes of Braveheart. And it's not too long. And it's got, um, what's the wee girl from Fighting With Your Family called? Uh, plays um, plays a lead in Fighting With fighting with My Family. What's her name? Oh, F- um, Florence Pugh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's in it. Then we've got... Uh, Patrick McGoon uh, playing um, Edward the First Longshanks, and he is just having the time of his life, isn't he? He <laughs> is just chewing up the scenery. <laughs> yeah. He is fantastic. Uh, did you know? Apparently, and I don't know if again if this is half-arsed internet research or anything, but apparently Sean Connery was offered that role. I read that as well, which is a strange bit of casting, right? Very strange. And of course, because you're going to have the King of England speaking with a Scottish accent. That's yeah. not going to work. You know, how's he going to go, oh, the problem with Scotland is it's full of Scots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not going to have the same effect, really, is it? Yeah. But, but Patrick McGoon, he is brilliant. He just Oh, he's as you say, he's having the time of his life there. Yeah, I mean, and I, ironically, that you mentioned that Sean Connery. Well, it was on the internet. It may or may not be true. Was considered for Edward the First. Patrick McGowan was considered for James Bond back in the early sixties. But he, wow. he turned it down because Patrick McGowan is a very strict Catholic and the whole womanizing piece and all that kind of thing. He was like, it's, it's, it, it's not for me. He also turned down The Saint in the TV series. Uh, ended mm-hmm. up going to Roger Moore because he, he was doing a TV show called uh, Danger Man, which is a sort of secret agent type thing. And the, the, the ironic thing about that that I read was Danger Man had come to an end, but after the first Bond film came out and this sort of like craze for like spy thrillers and stuff, Danger Man was resurrected and he did a he did another 
two seasons of it um, a couple mm. of years after it ended before he did I think the thing he's most famous for Patrick McGoon is the prisoner um, yeah. you know I am not a number um, but yeah yeah that's where I would know him from yeah uh, which was and apparently he came up with the idea for, for the prisoner because uh, oh, wow. Lou Grade who owned the TV station at the time wanted them to do another episode of Danger Man and he was like look I don't want to do any more Danger Man and he's like well look, you can do anything you want what do you want to do we just want to do something with you so he said well I've got a bit of an idea for a TV show and he developed it wrote and directed a few episodes and he also wrote and directed a few Columbos as well and he was a big fan a big friend of Peter Falk uh, who played the eponymous character and he starred in a couple as well um, I am a big Columbo fan. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Next, we've got Catherine McCormack, who, until I was doing my research, I thought was Scottish, possibly because of her second name and her passable mm. Scottish accent. But she also plays a Scottish character in a movie that we touched on before on the podcast that you said you would never, ever watch called This Year's Love. Uh, which I said was worth a watch because it's quite it's a, it's quite a funny romantic comedy. It's got a good cast. It's got Kathy Burke. It's got Dougie Henshaw, Ian Hart, and you said no, I never watch it. Dougie Scott's in it, uh, but you, uh, yeah, you said never watch it. Um, now, although she's not really in this movie a lot, I think I think the the adult uh, Moran, she's not even. I don't think she's even in it for half an hour. I don't think. I sort of thought that she would go on to quite a big career, if I'm honest. Mm. And it's it's not it's not really happened for her. Like she after this, she went and did the Land Girls with. Uh, Anna Friel and um, Rachel Weiss about the ladies in the Second World War and she did she plays um, Robert Carlyle's wife in 28 Weeks Later the sequel to 28 Days Later have you seen that? Mm. Yes, it's, yeah it's, yeah. it's not great a long time ago yeah. I haven't seen it for long I think I've only w- watched it once she's on record as saying though that she prefers doing theatre to doing movies um, mm. so fair enough and then now this actor obviously, I didn't realise that he played the part until years later when I came back to Braveheart. But uh, Brendan Gleeson is uh, Hamish because he's buried under all that hair and the big ginger beard and stuff like that. But it wasn't until, like I say, years after I had seen Braveheart a few times and I came back to it and I'd seen him play the lead in movies like The General and uh, later on uh, Gangs of New York and stuff like that. I didn't realise it was him. And he's a huge star. Oh, huge. Very big in latter kind of stages of his career. Mm. This is probably one of the first kind of films I remember him from. Yeah. He's in probably one of my favourite films of all time in Bruges. Yeah, yeah. And And he's just... I think he's just brilliant. He's a phenomenal actor. He's such a good actor. He's phenomenal. And, you know, his son is doing brilliant things now as well yeah. you know it's, it's an acting kind of dynasty they've set up there yeah he's he's brilliant as hamish and <laughs> I, I find it so funny the only thing i would say i think there's one scene his accent kind of slips right and it and it's when he's speaking to Stephen, and it must be so difficult for him being an irish actor <laughs> yeah. doing a scottish accent speaking to a scotsman doing an irish accent <laughs> that's just crazy but it works so well and, it, and it's literally i think one line that he says that sounds about Irish and I thought oh yeah but yeah. it's completely understandable because he's obviously hearing an Irish accent coming at him yeah. it, he's fantastic as Hamish he's so good I mean and the the chemistry between him and James Cosmo who plays his dad 
I think oh, is, is brilliant. And, and the, the thing is, he's only he's only seven years younger <laughs> than James yeah. Cosmo. I guess it doesn't it doesn't really matter because of all the facial hair and stuff. It's difficult to put an age yeah. on Hamish, you know. But you genuinely believe that they are father and son. Yeah, as you say, the chemistry is just amazing. Yeah. It, it's so good. He plays the part so well. And there's and the thing is, I don't know. Maybe maybe your mind is tricked into this just because of the the relationship being so well portrayed in the film. But you can be forgiven for thinking, well, there is a bit of a resemblance. You know, he, oh, yeah, he could is. be his son. Um, next then, next in the cast list then I've got written down uh, David O'Hara, who we mentioned before. So, mm. now obviously David O'Hara is, is he's gone on to have quite a successful career. I mean, he, mm. I, he, he was he was in the, the Rain Dog Theatre with um, Bobby Carlyle and some of the other guys before he did this um, in Glasgow. But this is, some of the parts that he's gone on to do... He just doesn't look anything like he looks as uh, as Stephen. Mm. I tried to sort of like imagine him without the long hair and the moustache and beard and stuff. But like he plays Fitzy in The Departed, and mm. he's, he's like really craggy, sort of spig. He looks quite broad-shouldered. Kind of. I, mean, I don't know if it's mm. just because Gibson was obviously in such great shape for Braveheart, and I think uh, Brendan Gleeson's quite a big fella anyway. So maybe, yeah. maybe um, you know, but most of his scenes, he's beside one of those guys. Maybe that's why he looks a bit more diminutive. But he, he plays James McAvoy's dad in, the, in Wanted. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's not a very good film. It's got Angelina Jolie and Morgan Freeman in it about the kind of Assassin's no. Guild. It's, yeah, it's a bit... I, I kind of refuse. I, I kind of try and avoid anything that Angelina Jolie's in. Oh, really? <laughs> not a fan. Of. But yeah, I mean, it just, it just looks... I don't know. I don't know if something happened to him between... Between, <laughs> between Bean and Braveheart and <laughs> next then I've got uh, Tommy Flanagan again who we mentioned earlier on He, you know he's got those distinctive scars on his cheeks he mm. used to be a DJ in Glasgow when he got attacked outside the pub one night and his face got slashed I, th- I think it's probably as I'm, sh- as I'm sure he still wishes that it never happened to him but um, I think it's probably not done him too bad as an actor you know he, no. he was in like I mentioned before he plays Chibs he came up with the name Chibs for his character in Sons of Anarchy but after the sort of Glasgow Region term for getting stabbed, getting chibbed. He's a he's got quite a big career off the back of it. He, he just did um he did, he did the last he did uh, Westworld last year as well. Oh, okay, he did a few episodes of Westworld and stuff. And he, he they, there's that Sons of Anarchy spin-off show, The Mayans, about the Hispanic oh, yeah. gang. He's had a couple of guest appearances in that. No, I've not watched that, oh. but I just read that online. Um, then this next this next actor, and it's it's a small but pivotal role in the plot of the movie is Michael Byrne, who plays. Smythe, the uh, the English guard who tries to force himself on Moran mm. and inadvertently sets a whole Scottish rebellion. <laughs> Perhaps a bit of uh, poetic license was used there for that. But he plays uh, Colonel Vogel in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, who is like mm. the main. I I didn't realize that because like he he, yeah. he does have a quite a distinctive look about him, quite dis- dis- facial oh. features, you know. And I'm thinking very much so, yeah, yeah. And then the last the last cast member I'll mention, your favorite, my favorite uh, actor. Uh, at the moment from Scotland is uh, the lovely Brian Cox playing Uncle Argyle. Wonderful. Apparently he was offered a bigger role in the film Mm. but he um, he liked he liked the character of Argyle even though it's not a very big part and he's not on screen for very long. Again it's a bit like um, it's a bit like what we said about his appearance in A Shot at Glory. Not in the film much but where he is in it he sort of raises it up a wee bit you know. And I think the wonderful thing about Uncle Argyle is when he turns up 
you're kind of like, oh God, is he going to be an arsehole? Yeah. But he's actually comes across as like a really nice guy, you know, when he's talking to William about how was the, the eulogy and yeah. it was it befitting, it was in Latin, oh, we'll have to remedy that. And of course, William repeats that line when he's talking to Mirren about teaching her to read. Yeah. So Uncle Argyle has obviously shaped William into the man that he is. And it's a beautiful moment when they're out at the front and he's William grabs the sword and he says, you know, first learn to use this and points to his head. Yeah. And then I'll teach you how to use this. What role do you think Brian Cox was offered? If, if he was offered a bigger role? I mean, there's any number I, of roles. I mean, I suppose he could have been offered maybe James Cosmo's role. Um, that's I what I wondered. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't really imagine him. I can't imagine anybody other than James Cosmo doing it. Because he, and James Cosmo is just having the fucking time of his life in that role. You know what I mean? He's just having the time. And some of the, some of the laugh out loud scenes are the ones that he's in. Like when, he, when he's having, when they're cauterizing the arrow. Well, first of all, he first gets hit by the arrow and uh, Hamish mm. tries to pull it out and he's like oh, yeah idiot boy <laughs> and then later on when they're, they're getting him pissed so they can cauterize the wounds and they're like like here you do it I need to hold him <laughs> they're holding him down and, he gets, and then he gets up and starts hitting people and then he's like oh, wake you up in the morning boy <laughs> but that's the thing with Cosmo in there's kind of three main kind of fight scenes <laughs> yeah. and in the first scene he gets an arrow in his chest in the second scene he gets his hand chopped off and then the third scene he gets an axe to the fucking stomach yeah he he gets it in every scene but it's almost comical the way apart from the last one yeah but as you say that when he gets the arrow in <laughs> and he just takes it so well he just snaps it off and then he's the one that's ramming and then lifts up the gate and then he tosses a javelin like he's fucking tessa sanderson or yeah. fatima whitbread as a javelin thrower like he just launches or, it into this english or, guard's or, chest or some male javelin thrower that we can't quite name <laughs> steve backley steve backley he was a javelin thrower wasn't he i'll take a word for it i don't know I'll right. fact check that and then I'll edit it out. <laughs> um, and then even when he gets his hand chopped off, it's kind of, the axe goes in and he just goes, ah, yeah, bastard, and then just <laughs> leathers the guy that does it. Yeah. And, and he seems fine. He stood there and then come the Battle of Falkirk, he's got his shield strapped to his stump, yeah. like ready to go to war. Cosmo is fucking brilliant in this film. That scene when he gets his hand cut off, I was, I was watching that bit again today and they probably should have had another go at that because when you see his arm, it's it's obviously the prop, it's, it's obviously a prop arm from like the shoulder to the hand and I don't know if it's like balls of socks or something that's in it, but obviously <laughs> the way that he sort of, he kind of falls back, I think, he, I think he sort of falls backwards over a horse or something and his yeah. arm looks like it's broken in about fucking six places before his hand gets chopped off and I've all, I always thought I mean why didn't you just like do it again I can't believe that you only get one shot at doing that <laughs> you know you just have another go at it make it even more convincing but yeah I mean Cosmo's done well off, off uh, Braveheart I mean obviously like he, well you, you you didn't watch Game of Thrones but he um, I think the first two seasons of Game of Thrones very very uh, like one of the kind of main parts in that and he's also in The Outlaw King as well he plays uh, Robert the Bruce's father in The Outlaw King and again plays a good part can he beat Cosmo? He's <laughs> just a <No>. man. <laughs> so no, I mean, he's fantastic. And then obviously we've got uh, Sophie Marceau, French actress, absolute 
absolutely beautiful actress. Again, a bit like um, Catherine McCormick, I sort of thought she would go on to sort of huge success. But I think the only kind of main thing, big thing she did after Braveheart was she plays um, a Bond girl in, uh, I think it's The World Is Not Enough, the one that Robert Carlyle plays the baddie in. Yes, that's right. Yeah. She still does quite a lot of movies in France. Um, let me just mm. don't, don't make it over here. And then, I guess, I mean, it's Peter Hamley who plays Prince Edward. Not really, apparently, still quite a, does a lot of acting in Ireland, but um, he was on Bally Kiss Angel. I never watched Bally Kiss Angel, but he was in that with uh, Colin yeah. Farrell. Um, mm. And obviously playing uh, playing the Prince Edward character and you know it's, it's implied heavily that uh, Prince Edward's a homosexual in the movie yeah and uh, Gibson, perhaps unfairly, has had a bit of stick for um, the scene where Longshanks throws um, Edward's friend slash possible lover. It's never confirmed out the window. And um, p- uh, poor Mel's been accused of hating homosexuals because he put that scene in, which uh, it seems a bit unfair. I mean, you say heavily implied. It's heavily implied with a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, that exactly. he's, uh, he's a homosexual and that Philip is his lover. Yeah. And obviously... Longshanks doesn't agree with this. They even say that Robert the Bruce says in the narration, you know, it, it said that in order to have a child, Longshanks would have to do it himself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I did read that Gibson came in a little bit of stick for for that, and it is quite a yeah, not a graphic, but yeah, it's quite a. It, it comes out of nowhere that he just grabs Philip and throws him out the window. Yeah, and my wife was even like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, it. Your tease out. That's um, how they rolled in the 13th century. It's <laughs> out there. Yeah. So a little bit of a yeah, I can, I can see that why he came into a bit of criticism for that. So yeah, so like you you know quite an eclectic cast. Um, to touch on as well, um, Princess Isabella's aide, who is uh, Nicolette, who is played by Jeannie Marine, right? And she's married to someone quite famous. Do you know who that is? Brian Cox. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You're not far off in a way. Um, it, in 1996, she got together, and I think they got married quite, not quite recently, but they got married like about 10 years after they got together. Um, she's married to Bob Geldof. Is she really? Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Geldof would have been, he'd still, he'd still been with Paula Yates when, uh, when Braveheart came out, I think. Well, they'd, yeah, I think they would have just split up, like yeah. in terms of around about that time, so yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, she's now married to Bob Geldof. They've been together since 1996. There is a wee fact that just to kind of go sort of backtrack a wee bit, you mentioned about about Brad Pitt. Well, it's it's not really a fact. It's more of an irony. So you know, they what this film may have looked like with Brad Pitt in the lead role. Brad Pitt would go on to play Achilles in Troy. Mm. So a yeah. s- similar sort of role in as much that it's a hard bastard, like right? amazing soldier. Uh, and again, and also Troy also stars uh, Brian Cox. <laughs> Out of interest. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, in terms of the battle scenes as well, and I think they are beautifully done, the, the way they are, and you probably have to say one of the most iconic scenes is the Battle of Sterling. Yeah. At the beginning. At the beginning of the Battle of Sterling, I mean. And you have Peter Mullen and, of course, the, the actor... Dave um, Mackay. Who, Dave Mackay. Yeah. So, yes. Um, who was in Rabsi Nesbitt yeah. as the, the cousin, yeah, after we Barney left. Mm-hmm. And they kind of when Gibson comes in and delivers the speech and we watched that last night my wife who is German she actually said I've got goosebumps (laughs) after that speech yeah Yeah. like after he delivers the speech and when he ends it and and I'm sitting there with I'm not gonna lie I've got tears in my eyes I I don't care how often I watch that speech I well up it's just something in me I just well up and 
yeah, got tears in my eyes, and I'm just going like, oh, okay, yeah, you got goosebumps, yeah. <laughs> I've got something and in my eye here. <laughs> that speech is just incredible. It just gets you fired up. It's just amazing. Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Right? Against that? No! We will run! And we will live. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives but they'll never take our freedom! I was saying before about about about, about Gibson. Yeah, I think it really, you know, really stretched himself as an actor in this movie. Mm. Really, sort of showed what he could do. You know, because I mean that. You know, I mean, I guess that that's that speech gets used a lot um, for various things to do with like Scottish independence and and everything. You know, it's become it's sort of become a character of its own. Mm. That speech. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's huge. It gets quoted all the time. You know, I, th- I think I think it's even occasionally been played before Scotland football and uh, rugby games as well to get the crowd all fired up and stuff like that you know but you know it's it's brilliant but what I'd forgotten about as well of course I remember the speech but it's the it's the follow-up part so when they say where are you going I'm going to pick a fight and my wife burst out laughing at that (laughs) it's like oh he's going to pick a fight brilliant and and it's great and then when he rides up and he is you know the English sheriff or the general whatever meant to be is general is is giving their terms and gibson's just riding around staring him out yeah and then he's like these are scotland's terms it's it's martin riggs <laughs> yeah delivering some off the head speech and you can see the intensity in his face and mm. he's just like i'm not taking any shit from you and that that speech is almost as good when he's like here are our terms from which you will pay the king an annual duty. I said I have an offer for you. You disrespect a banner of truce. From his king? Absolutely. Here are Scotland's terms. Lower your flags and march straight back to England, stopping at every home you pass by to beg forgiveness for a hundred years of theft, rape and murder. Do that and your men shall live. Do it not and every one of you will die today. 
But I was watching an, an interview with Gibson, um, and he said that in hindsight, he wishes that he had just that the scene had been him just riding up and like killing that captain rather oh, than no. rather than oh, the, no, no, no. the the dialogue. He was like, you know, it would have saved some dialogue. It would have it would have kind of moved things along a bit. But I, I I'm with you. I I I, oh. I love that. I think it's, oh, if he just killed up and um, yeah. rode up and killed him, no, that part it, it's one of my favourite parts. It's just the intensity as he's and I did read. I think that Gibson was slightly uh, unable to control his horse at a yeah. lot of points of the film, and you do see that when you're watching it. Uh-huh. But it adds to the realism. That's the thing that he's not just standing there. Well, that's and the intensity kind of, of it. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he is kind of a bit like wobbly and a bit uncontrolling, but he's still keeping character. And yeah. oh no, that. That's one of my favourite parts. I love that when he's just delivering. Well, okay, yeah. Well, here are Scotland's terms. Yeah. Ah, it, oh, it's so good. I read the the horse was was uncomfortable because obviously he's shouting. You know what I mean when he's giving the speech yeah. to the assembled troops and everything. But yeah, I mean it is it's such an evocative uh, speech. You know what I mean? And it just sort of sets up this amazingly well shot um, battle. You know, like I love the, the sort of sweeping camera. The thing that we've not spoken about yet, which I th- which which I realised something today, an opinion, I formed an opinion today, um, but the score by James Horner, oh. that that might be my favourite ever mm-hmm. film score. It's probably that, the music from Platoon. Um, mm-hmm. Quite similar. Yeah, they're a wee bit similar. That's, that's probably it. You know what I mean? Just, and it's it's the range of it, you know, like, so when the film starts, it's all sort of pipes and, you know, the kind of mm-hmm. drums and stuff like that. Because like Gibson said that he didn't want like a big open uh, credits sequence so that's why it's mm. just the camera yeah. panning over the rolling hills and then it just comes up with Braveheart but then the tension that the score adds to the beginning of that battle when they're all forming mm. up after the big speech and after he's he's um, threatened the English captain and they're all forming up and stuff and they're getting ready for the English attacks it's so good I mean I know and I was watching it thinking I really love to see this in the cinema again you know what yeah. I mean like in surround sound <laughs> a big screen even if even if I could only watch that sort of 20 minutes or so of the movie from all the from all the all gathering from uh, Wallace and his guys arriving and the speech and then the kind of parley with the English guy and then the battle it's just it's such a br- and, and it's only Gibson's second film and he's, he's for, as a director and his last film is a fucking romantic melodrama about a guy with mm. a fucking mangled coupon do you know what I mean and yet he's got the natural ability to be able to shoot these sweeping epic battle scenes with hundreds and hundreds of actors on screen if you think about that that battle in like maybe 10 minutes maybe it's not even 10 minutes maybe five minutes that that five minutes you have i can, I can only think of the emotions again my wife was going through in terms of like so the goosebumps of the speech and then you have the kind of laughter but swelling of audacity and pride when he's saying the english these are our terms like you know fuck you take them or every one of you is going to die and he goes back then you get comedy of all the scots flashing the english <laughs> yeah and then you get the ooh as the arrows come flying in then you get the scots mooning the english so you get the laughs again then you get the intensity again of them getting shot with arrows and then it's the stramash and the battle and you have the violence 
the amount of emotions and you go through in those 10 minutes or so is incredible. It's, yeah. a, it's a complete roller coaster, and he nails every single one. And as I say, we're I'm talking as a Scot, you're talking as a Scot, wife's talking as a German. As she was watching it last night, she was saying to me, you know, we really have no idea about this in terms of the UK is just the UK. You're yeah. all the same. Yeah. We don't have any idea about any of this in England, Scotland. She's like, if I'd never met you, I wouldn't have any idea about mm. the, the difference and, and all this battle and how much the, the dislike and, and and things it's so you kind of forget so for you know mel gibson to bring this to the big screen yeah just showed and, and this was a huge impact this film as well yeah it was massive but he did it so well yeah and you know they brilliant for tourism in scotland mm. to your point because, you know, they can, I'm sure all over the world there'd be a lot of people who had no idea. I mean, like I said before, when I was wee, my papa used to take me to, I remember him taking me to the Wallace Monument when I was quite young, maybe like seven or eight, and going into the room where his um, sword is kept. And I, mean, I suppose when I was about that age, I was maybe, I was always quite tall for my age, maybe I was like about just under five foot, something like that, four, maybe four ten, four eleven. My papa saying, you, you, you weren't able to stand next to his sword because back in those days they had it sort of like vertically in a glass tube up in the wall and my mm. granddad was saying look his sword is bigger than you imagine imagine a man like wielding a sword bigger than you um and uh so like, like i said before i knew a wee bit of the history of the film like a very little bit like i knew about the battle of Stirlingbridge, um and i also knew about the battle of bannockburn at the end everything about falkirk didn't know much about wallace other than the fact that he was like a scottish hero he's got an amazing monument built to him in sterling i was there with my, I took my daughters there in October 2018 uh, when the three of us went home to Scotland for a week during the school holidays and it was October <laughs> and we, we went up the Wallace Monument and I'm not great with heights. Well, I'm okay with heights as long as, as long as I feel secure. And the Wallace Monument, you know, like it's, it was obviously built in the 19th century. Not that it's not a sturdy, a sturdy building, but the sort of walls at the top feel a wee bit low for someone who's quite tall. And it was windy as fuck as well. So I was, the, the kids were like, come on, dad, come on. Because I, I didn't go quite onto the top. I let, I let my father take the girls up on the top and I sort of stayed a few steps down. I wasn't quite on the, on the top of it. But yeah, you should take, um, you should take Anka next time you're in Scotland to the Wallace Monument now, now now, she knows our history you know oh now she's seen Braveheart yeah I'll uh, I'll make sure I take her to the Wallace Monument definitely there's a statue of Mel Gibson at the bottom because right? so the Wallace Monument's on the top of a hill and there's like a very steep road that goes up and at the bottom of the car park they've got a statue of um, they've got a statue of William Wallace that proved to be quite uh, Mel Gibson is William Wallace which proved to be quite controversial among the people of Stirling and it kept getting vandalised so they put it in a sort of cage which has also proved controversial because yeah. now it's like this hero of um, Scottish history has been put in jail so you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't <laughs> if you're still in council unfortunately so I, I know we've spoken a little bit about uh, David O'Hara mm. and Stephen and he really does provide the kind of comic relief yeah. in terms of this film he's hilarious the, the way he comes across as yeah. his parts. He's, he's just got some great one-liners and as this just mad Irishman. <laughs> yeah. And of course, when he's saying that it's his island and when the Irish turn up at the Battle of Falkirk, it's it's a fantastic moment that <laughs> when they're charging together and you're kind of thinking, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden they just down and, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good <laughs> yeah. to see you. 
it's it he does provide a lot of comic relief which is kind of needed in this film as well for sure and and again he puts in a really good performance because like to your point he's great at playing the sort of eccentric wee bit unhinged uh, irish guy but then at the end, when Wallace is being executed and Stephen and Hamish are in disguise in the crowd, you know, he's he doesn't say anything, really. Well, he does, he says mercy, William, towards the end, but that's all he says, but his expression and everything, you know what I mean? You're like, it, it's obviously a very evocative scene anyway. I mean, if, if you get emotional at the, at the, the kind of big speech before the Battle of Stirling, then... The execution scene is going to do you in, especially when he shouts freedom. When he shouts freedom and uh, Stephen just sort of looks down like that and you're just like fucking bubbling up and all that, you know? I wonder if that's what gets me because, again, we watched it last night and, yeah, I was in tears at the execution scene and it is the shouting of freedom. But I think now you've touched upon it. Yeah. That is it. It's Stephen's look when yeah. he shouts freedom and Stephen just, just looks down as if to say, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. And every time you've seen him, he's kind of been looking up to God or, or Father and yeah. speaking. But it's just this look down of, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. I mean, to speak about the execution scene, it's yeah, it's it's pretty horrible to watch. Mm. And yeah, I don't mind saying, yeah, I was crying last night watching it. It's it's horrible and but it's it's beautiful in the same way. And that's what I was kind of touching upon earlier. It's almost the the happy ending of yeah. when he sees Mirren walking through the crowd. You're yeah. kind of like, everything's okay. He's gonna be at peace now and he's going to get his happy ending. The other bit that gets me about that scene is when the crowd who have been booing him and everything because of his strength and the fact that he won't he won't just like sort of kiss the crest on the executioner's robe and he won't beg for mercy. They suddenly turn and they're on his side. You know what I mean? He goes from being, he becomes a hero even to these people who have turned out to see this traitor against their king be executed and this outlaw and this villain that, you know, and then they suddenly, that, that woman shouts, mercy, mercy, and then they all start shouting mercy, you know what I mean? And it's it's really, really evocative. And do you think that's it? Because they've just seen him go through so much punishment that yeah. they just, they can't take any more and they just want to see him just end it and just mercy just give up yeah and as you say this baying crowd that have come to see blood and they're, they're yeah. throwing rotten vegetables at him as he's coming in and they're cheering everything but yeah as you say they just completely turn and they're almost on his side yeah I, not I, really I, but but i sort of think that i think we're supposed to believe and i can i and i fully believe it <laughs> that um it's his determined suddenly his determination and stoicness and refusal to turn away from his cause that obviously these are all supposed to be common people that have turned out to watch this and then you know they suddenly they're inspired by him you know what i mean they're inspired by his uh, by his resolve and his the fact that his refusal just to give this executioner what he wants that he'll never pledge allegiance to this tyrannical king you know and they're just like suddenly they're on his side and they just want you know he's he becomes a bit of a hero to them in as much as he was a hero to the people of scotland that's what i, I like to believe that anyway so he's had his his kind of not happy ending but you know i mean he's seen Mirren in the crowd and she smiles and he kind of smiles and okay head lopped off yeah Drops his wee bit of fabric that he was holding on to. Now, when he gets up to heaven and sees her, is she not going to give him shit for 
shagging the French princess. Well, you think so, right? And impregnating her as well, apparently, which that's a bit of a a dubious storyline. She's said that to Longshanks, that she is effectively carrying William Wallace's baby. Yeah. Well, she's going to be off to the fucking stock. She's going to be next on the list, isn't she? She she just whispers to him. She doesn't whisper. I suppose she could say that, I mean, I guess she could have said that the king knocked her up after after he's died. You know, I don't think Edward's going to argue. I mean, you know, I mean, in in reality, Isabella was actually only three at the time that William Wallace was mm. <laughs> around. So there's a, there's a fair bit of uh, a fair bit of the of liberty taken there anyway with the with the timelines in the story. So I'll, I'll be honest, that's one of the parts of the film I don't really like. It it, it the kind of the romance. It doesn't really yeah. work for me. Is romance with her? I agree. Him kind of having her as an ally. And yeah. her tipping him off. But yeah. I could have done without the sex scene. That's it, the whole point of this film. I mean, effectively, Wallace doesn't want to fight the English, as he says to Mirren's dad. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't care. He just wants to raise his crops, build a family, and that's it. And effectively, it is the death of his wife that spurns him on to do this. Yeah. Which makes this, this isn't a, a story about a guy fighting for Scottish independence. This is a kind of a revenge film. Well, that's what he's I mean. like, yeah. fuck you. I'm going to do this. It's kind of taken, but... <laughs> set in Scotland old yeah. times so if he was so in love with his wife and you know okay she's dead would he really sleep with yeah he probably would because she is lovely but <laughs> that just doesn't sit right with me in terms of that because he's doing this to effectively in the honour of his his dead wife and okay then it becomes about you know freedom for Scotland and being free and killing the English but that part of the film just doesn't sit right with me that them having the little romance yeah I mean, to be honest I think that is one of the one of the weaknesses of the script and you touched on it and I don't think it's a weak script by any set by in any stretch but I think that is a weakness in that you touched on it so all he wants to do is marry Merrin have kids raise crops live quietly he's told Merrin's dad listen I'm not, I don't want to get involved in all this political stuff just want a quiet life events conspire Mirren is killed, so they have the big revenge scene when he, you know, he storms the the kind of keep. But then it it just becomes about Scottish independence from England for yeah. the rest of the film, and it's like now maybe in the four hour. <laughs> Gibson cut there'll be a bit of there'll be some scenes between him getting his revenge and then deciding to uh, fight the cause which make up which make the whole thing make a bit more sense but um, but yeah it is because if you think about it, you've got Mad Max wife and daughter my well, wife and baby are killed goes on mm. massive revenge you've got um, lethal weapon wife is killed doesn't give a fuck you know just reckless no, gives a fuck about his wife being killed, but it's just reckless and doesn't care about himself and stuff. You've got payback, which is a, a revenge thing. You've got ransom, where, you know, he's starts taking revenge on these guys mm. and stuff. And then, of course, then you've got Braveheart, which you said that yourself. It could be, could be, I mean, the SNP might be a bit disappointed to hear it, but it could be portrayed as just a massive revenge film. <laughs> Man takes revenge on country for death of his wife. And this film did come in for a bit of flack of it being like anglophobic, mm. you know, very anti-English and yeah. kind of is in a way the English are painted as the the bad people but Mm -hmm. well what kind of film like this isn't there has to be a 
a bad a enemy yeah. or a bad person. You know, it's, yeah, it's exactly. usually the Germans or the Russians or, or the Romans or, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it has to be somebody. So might as well be the English. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the English are just a bit more sensitive than the, the Germans or the Russians. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, you're you're hundred percent right. I mean, and, and the the fact about it is, although there there's a lot of historical inaccuracy, which you know we're not going to go into all the details on because it's been sort of done to death already. The film is based in fact. I think you said it earlier. Like a, a lot of these events did happen maybe not exactly as they're shown in the movie but it's not like Scotland was never occupied by the English <laughs> do you know what I mean mm. they, the yeah. country was I mean I, I did a lot of research looking into this and obviously I know my kind of history but it, I think it gets a bit of a bad rap people saying I think um, the author John O'Farrell said uh, Braveheart could not have been more historically inaccurate uh, even if a plasticine dog had been inserted into the film and it had been called William Wallace and Gromit. Now, I I think that's not right because, okay, it is historically inaccurate in a way. Yeah. But all these people existed. These events happened, just maybe not in the right way. Yeah. It's not like the, what what was the the film U1571 with John Bon Jovi, which was about a a British submarine, but they changed it to an American submarine. Or yeah. like, it's not like Pearl Harbor or something with Ben Affleck, you know, kind of, it, these things did actually happen, but just slightly differently. Yeah. And I think there's a lot there. These battles happened. The The characters were there. Okay, you could say the, the bit of Princess Isabella and, you know, she was five or so mm. when it actually happened isn't accurate. But William Wallace, okay, he was a, a nobleman, apparently, and wasn't poor, but he did marry his childhood sweetheart. She did die mm-hmm. at the hands of an English sheriff. And that was what caused his revenge. And him yeah. and his mates went and stormed an English kind of castle and killed everyone. And then that was what started the rampage. And they did rampage down to York mm-hmm. and then ended up having the Battle of Falkirk and Stirling. So this it did happen. Yeah. And, and, and the way he died, that is what happened. You know, mm-hmm. it was Robert the Bruce's father that effectively betrayed him and gave him up to the English. And so... To say it's massively historically inaccurate, I think is a yeah, it's, it's not, not right. It's unkind. I think you know it's you know and they, as you said it right at the top of the podcast. It's designed to be a movie. Uh, well, some it's designed to entertain. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a oh. it's a it's a piece of entertainment which is based on facts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, I, I mean exactly as we say. Like uh, we reviewed um, Comfort and Joy. Mm on the podcast uh, available wherever you get your podcasts. That's not a genuine description of the ice cream wars in Glasgow, is it? It's <laughs> certainly not. They definitely not. So, yeah. So if you want a documentary, go and watch a documentary. If you want to watch an entertaining film, watch Braveheart. Absolutely. <laughs> do you want actually, do you want to know a few sort of facts? I feel a little bit of trivia about the movie that I found. You, you, may, you may know them already. I would um, love to know that, Greg. Tell me. There's a story. So one of Gibson's sons was on the set when they were filming the battle scenes and one of the extras thought that his son was like a runner or something and told him to go and make him a cup of tea Gibson overheard and rather than sacking the or bollocking the extra said to his son yeah just go make him a cup of tea <laughs> that makes me like Mel Gibson even more yeah that's, that's brilliant 
Yeah. It's not all bad. Um, the <laughs> the scene, the area they used for Wallace's village is Glen Nevis, which uh, has the heaviest rainfall in Europe. And they, there's those scenes oh. near the beginning of the film when he's courting uh, Morin when it's absolutely pissing down with rain. <laughs> yeah, so, it was heavy rain. Yeah. yeah. Um, apparently, Randall Wallace went, who, who wrote the script for Braveheart, he went to visit the set of Titanic in Mexico about a year after I think they were filming Titanic about a year after Braveheart came out and um, DiCaprio told him when he found out when DiCaprio found out that he was Randall Wallace and everything DiCaprio told him that he often stood on the on the front of the, the set for Titanic of the ship and shouted freedom you know like in the Titanic film he stands up there with what's her name Kate Winslet and she thinks yeah. she can she thinks she can she feels like she's flying do, he used to do that quite a lot in between the shooting the scenes of Titanic Sioris Wallace, who is the Wallace clan chief and a descendant of William Wallace, was an advisor in the film. Apparently Mel Gibson went to stay with him and his family for a few weeks um, before hmm. they started filming so he could work on his Scottish accent and apparently the scene where, what that you mentioned earlier on, when Wallace is uh, threatening the English captain or general before the Battle of Stirling, Sioris uh, remarks that his movements and everything are very reminiscent of, because uh, he, he does a lot of um, battle uh, reenactments Sioris Wallace mm. as well. He, he know he, and he advises on like sword play and stuff like that. He said that the uh, Gibson's movements were all very much like a Scottish person going to pick going to pick a fight. He said, <laughs> is, "Is sword play anyway associated with pup play?" <laughs> well, he does live in Stirling, so it's possible. Oh, right, the last fact: so the Battle of Stirling Bridge was on September the 11th, and the Scottish Parliament opened for the first time in 1997 on September the 11th. I don't know if that was by design or whether it was just a, a nice coincidence for the Scottish Parliament. I'm not sure. So yeah, I, I already gave you my fact about Gibson wishing he just rode up and killed the, the captain rather than um, and, and saved the dialogue, as he as, as, he, as he put it. But see, just uh, going back to... So the, the scene where Wallace returns to the village and he has the stone-throwing competition with Hamish. Yeah. Now, and then there's the bit after he's challenged Hamish to throw the big rock at him and Hamish misses. And then Wallace throws like a fair-sized rock right at Hamish's head and the whole village including James Cosmo Hamish's dad start laughing like fuck Hamish no doubt I know he's he's a big fella but no doubt concussed he concussed after getting hit in the forehead by a rock and he falls in his arse (laughs) the whole village are just laughing you know at that point you might be thinking this might be a bit of a prick this Wallace is coming here throwing stones at his pals and stuff (laughs) oh but Hamish takes it in good jest he says straight away oh I forgot about the stones or I forgot about the rocks. Doesn't get any choice but to take it in good jest. The whole village is laughing at him and is on Wallace's side. <laughs> you know, but I'd forgotten about that, and that was one thing that does pop up a lot in the film yeah. in terms of fucking hell. Wallace is a dead shot with a rock, isn't yeah. it? Like, as you see early when him and Hamish are kids mm-hmm. and he's throwing the stones and then of course that's when you get the callback with him hitting Hamish then and then at least three or four times later on in the film he's well he's hitting Mirren's window <laughs> yeah. with the stones she's got nice shutter windows for living in a little cave as well doesn't she that's <laughs> quite bothy. advanced her dad's obviously a good yeah a wee bossy <laughs> yeah. a wee she got nice little shutter windows and of course when he's when they're trying to goad the English yeah, and they yeah. run to kind of the, the big cave wall and they, they all appear on the top and he just launches the rock and hits the guy in the head yeah he's got a good shot with a rock yeah well he, he tans poor Mirren in the coupon as well didn't he <laughs> although albeit by accident 
accident, but still, <laughs> she still goes out with him. Um, I think the only other sort of nit I might pick is the scene near the is the scene when he takes his revenge on the sort of English garrison or the keep. So he rides mm-hmm. in on his horse. He's got his uh, hands up to show that he's yeah. not. No one spots the fucking mace down the back of his shirt under his hair, <laughs> and nobody notices the fucking antler knuckle duster that he must, I can only assume, is under his kilt. <laughs> he uses to stab the English guard in the throat. Well, I'd say, first of all, okay, that scene just evokes for me the end of Die Hard with John McClane oh, yeah. when he's got his hands up and he's got the, the gun strapped to his back yeah. with a Christmas tree. <laughs> it's not a mace, it's nunchucks. That he oh, has. I thought, so I thought it was like a sort of mace thing. No, no, it's nunchucks. <laughs> so I, I don't know if nunchucks existed, but William Wallace becomes Michelangelo <laughs> from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for that scene. No, it's it's pure. It's it's nunchucks that he smacks the guy in the face yeah. with. Uh, but yeah, but nobody searches him at that point. So he he comes in on the horse. Nobody has had a chance to tap him down. Yeah. So he's got the nunchucks hidden in kind of I don't know if it's in his hair or <laughs> just the back of his top. His ultimate warrior. Um, and his little moose knuckle duster. <laughs> He's obviously had that hidden somewhere, but no one gets a chance to search him uh, before he comes down there. So I would, I think you're you're picking the wrong bits well, there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know it's just a, not it's barely worth mentioning. I think we should probably put the movie through the awards um, shortly. But I do like Peter. You mentioned them before, but Peter Mullen and David Mackay's characters. It's it's such a because they they're not in the they, they you see Peter Mullen in the background a wee bit here and there during the battles, and obviously you do see them again at the end for the Battle of Bannockburn when they when they turn out for the Bruce. You know, and it's quite pleasing to see that they both survived both the Battle of Stirling and the Battle of Falkirk. But I love their wee back and forth little conversation they're having um, before. And then obviously you touched on it at the very beginning of the pods. Peter Mullen's got that, uh, you know, like Wallace is seven foot tall and all that, you know, and he sort of sparks that really funny line from Gibson. I think that's the, along with Stephen, they are kind of the, yeah. the comedy element of the film. <laughs> And I agree, it's wonderful to see at the very end at Bannockburn, yeah. they're both yeah. there. Yeah, I love... And how how on earth has Dave Mackay's character lasted that long? Because <laughs> he's a weedy little bastard. <laughs> Peter Mullen, I could maybe take. He's missing a few yeah. teeth. He looks a bit battle-weary. You could understand him doing that. But how's he lasted that long? But they are great in terms of their interaction, and that does bring the comedic element. I love, I love Mullen's, Right, we're not dying for these bastards! <laughs> Well, that's the thing. One part that kind of sticks with me, and I don't know, of course, it's a lot of years later, so I'd imagine a lot of water's been under the bridge, but... When you come to the very end of the film, okay, Wallace has died. We've got the Battle of Bannockburn. And I know that's not how it went down. It wasn't a spontaneous thing that Robert the Bruce just kind of decided, ah, fuck it, let's fight them. It was a well-orchestrated and Uh well-planned attack on the English. But you have Hamish and Stephen there. And of course, um, Peter Mullen and uh, Dave Mackay's characters there. In particular, Stephen and Hamish. After what Robert the Bruce did yeah. to Wallace, would they not just be like, get to fuck? I'm not fucking fighting with you, you Yeah, maybe, maybe he's made a compelling case. I mean, we're, you know, the, that, the scene when um, when Wallace is kind of huckled by the English guards when he goes to see Robert the Bruce near the end of the movie, you know, obviously we're led to believe that, that it was all, it was all Robert, it was all like the older Bruce's um, doing and Robert didn't know anything about it. And, but, but it's a really weird moment. Right at the beginning of that scene when he's waiting for Wallace to turn up and he's walking down the table. 
Oh no, I didn't think you meant um, the bit that was weird with me. That I, I could get him walking up and down the table and jumping down because he's kind of pacing about yeah. waiting. The bit with that scene that was kind of struck to me, and I'm like, what's going on there? Is when he's Wallace is coming in on the horse, and the is a young boy comes and gets the horse, yeah. and as he's walking away, he gives the Bruce this little wee yeah. look. And I'm like, what's going on there? Uh-huh. And then Robert the Bruce all of a sudden is like, oh no, oh no, an ambush is happening. How does he know that? What's going on with that little wee boy? Know. That was very strange. Yeah. Um, do you think Robert the Bruce's dad obviously has like leprosy mm-hmm. or something because he's got that? Um, do you think as the film goes on, he morphs more and more into Liam Neeson in Dark Man? <laughs> he does a bit, yeah. Does, <laughs> does, does a lot, actually. <laughs> I mean, actually, we didn't, we didn't mention, um, he's played by Ian Bannon, who's a, an amazing Scottish actor. Mm. I, think, I think he passed away not too long after Braveheart came out, but I always remember watching him in Dr. Finlay with my mother. But yeah, he was a great actor, Ian Bannon. He'd been around for a long, long time. I mean, he's, he's although that's, it's not a particularly, it's quite a, an important part of the movie, especially uh, in regards to the big betrayal towards the end. But he, again, he's, he's a wee bit like Brian Cox. He's not in an awful, he's not got an awful lot of screen time, but he's fucking brilliant as the older yeah. Bruce, I think. He's so, he's really, really good. It's a, it's a shame he's having to, he only gets to act with uh, Angus McFadden, who not at the height of his powers in this film, as we've discussed already. Personal opinions, you know, that's just personal opinions. But uh, yeah, Ian Bannon was a great actor. But yeah, he does have le- he is supposed to have leprosy. But apparently, they reckon that Robert the Bruce had leprosy as well. So they th- mm. so they say. I think quite a lot of people had leprosy back in the 13th century. It's common. I know he is brilliant. And as I say, I just wondered the every scene you see him, he has more and more bandages on his face, and it was just kind of the last appearance. You're like, fucking hell, it's Dark Man. <laughs> yeah. I watched Dark Man just uh, not that long ago. I don't ever seen it once. I know he did. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, shall we put Braveheart through our Culture Swally Awards? Let's do it, yeah. All right, so in no particular order then, what did you have for archetypal Scottish moment or moments? For this one, it's difficult because mm. you could pick a whole number of things. I went for the thistle mm. present. I think it's a beautiful, it's the, yeah, I'm Scottish. A thistle is a beautiful flower and just the pressing of it and the fact, and my wife even said it, obviously she was thinking this was a romantic comedy. <laughs> and when he hands Mirren, you know, the, the kind of napkin yeah. that he's, he's kept the thistle in, she went, oh my God, he kept it all these years. And okay, that's, it's not most romantic moment, yeah. but the thistle and the pressing of a thistle, I, you could pick a whole host of things in these films, but that's what I went for. Yeah. What about yourself? I had, I had, I had two. I had, I mentioned it already, uh, Cosmo after having his wound cauterized. No, when uh, Hamish is um, trying to pull the arrow out for him and he's like, ah, oh, idiot boy. I don't know why. I just felt like, maybe, maybe I was called an idiot boy quite a lot as a kids growing up but it just felt like quite a Scottish thing but the other thing I had was just the and maybe I was influenced a bit by the events of the weekend and uh, the Scottish fans being in, invading London for the football but I just had the taunting of the English <laughs> seems like quite an archetypal Scottish thing to do you know the other thing I would give it to would be when William and Mirren go off for their first horse ride together and they come home and it's obviously very dark at night and you just hear Mirren's mum going, come in Mirren. And I almost expect her next line to be, your tea's out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If she said that, then that would have been 
my archetype of Scottish moment. But I'm going to go for the Thistle Press. Yeah, that's a nice one. I mean, Gibson does have a line which um, seems quite, quite particularly Scottish when um, he challenges Hamish to throw the boulder at him. And Hamish says, you'll move. And he says, I will not. And that, that's, well, that sounds, you know, nailed your, nailed your Scottish accent for that wee line there, Mel. Yeah. Could you crush a man with that throw? I could crush you like a worm. You could. Aye. Well then do it. Would you like to see him crush me like a worm? Come do it. Even move. I will not. Okay, I think we should probably, I mean, taunting of the English is perhaps a bit unkind because I'm sure we have English listeners and, you know, we appreciate you as much as we appreciate our Scottish one. Um, so we'll, maybe it's, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll strike that and we'll give it to uh, the, the thistle pressing because that's a nice one. Although, how did she, oh, thanks. How did she manage to pick the thistle without getting her fingers jagged? It did cross my mind. Have you ever tried to pick a thistle? No, because they're jaggy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's only the one thing I could think of for this next category, but the, the Francis Begbie Award for swearing. What did you give it to? Well, what's your award? Mine was Irish Stephen, right before the Battle of the Falkirk. When the, well, sorry, right before the Battle of Stirling, when the arrows are raining down and they're piercing through the shields, and he says to he says to Wallace, uh, the, the Almighty says he can get me out of this one, but he's pretty sure you're fucked. <laughs> the Lord tells me he can get me out of this mess, but he's pretty sure you're fucked. <laughs> it's exactly what I yeah. had. Yeah, I think that's, it's perfect use of swearing. I think there is a there are a couple of others. I think, but that's the without a doubt the best yeah. use. There's no question. It's just perfect. It's comedy, and it's yeah, that's the best use of swearing. Um, the Hugh McGregor Nudity Awards. I kind of gave it. I've written in my notes Bozut at the Battle of Stirling. <laughs> There's only two options really, and I'm not going to give it to the obvious one of the after wedding scene so mm. yeah it's oh, yeah. the it's the balls out yeah it's the balls and the arses out yeah. at the battle of, Ster- uh, battle of sterling yeah that's that's it that's an idiot award it's gratuitous <laughs> yeah. and it's brilliant. it's brilliant and evocative it's not close enough up to make you feel uncomfortable about seeing another man's genitalia the so for the jake mcquillan your tease moment so i i had three here i had i've got three as well I've written here first dismemberment, which is the one I mentioned earlier on, the guy getting his leg cut off in the battle in the attack on the garrison near the beginning of the film. I had um the English gem English general decapitation near the end of the Battle of Stirling, and I had the De Mornay bed smash I just wrote um for when Gibson rides into his bedroom and, and tans him. That was definitely a mace that time, right? That was definitely a mace, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I have three as well, okay. but I have two different ones okay. from you. Okay. So I've taken the Jake McCullen Yartizu Award as in kind of like a, a nasty kind of revenge attack type mm-hmm. thing. So I have Wallace killing Morney with a mace in the bed. Um, I have Longshanks throwing Philip out the well, window. It's a good one, but be careful because we might be accused of not liking homosexuals like Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I think my favourite and my first one was Morrison, played by Tommy Flanagan, battering the English guy. Yeah. That, 
raped his wife yeah. just the way he's like remember me and just batters the fuck out I think we should I, like I think that. we should probably give it to that one because it's satisfying that one because that the, the whole kind of prima noctai uh, scene uh, after the wee wedding the wee wedding scene is uh, it's quite painful do you know what I mean and the, 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 oh, the, it's horrible, the fact horrible. The, you know, she, she just goes she'd rather go than Morrison uh, be beaten up by the English or anything happened to him for mm. resistance she's like no no I'll just go it's alright it's alright and again Gibson he kind of he kind of puts that little moment on the screen absolutely brilliantly it's only like only lasts like a minute or two but it, movies there's always scenes that just that just sort of burrow in and they'll, they'll always be there whenever you think of the film and I think that's one of the many scenes in Braveheart but that's one of the scenes that whenever I think of the movie it's always just it's always there the whole prima nocta thing you know I'm always disappointed that Morrison only hits the guy twice yeah. and I, they're good hits yeah. but you almost want him to really like almost comically batter him like five six times mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah that's uh, that's my teasy award yeah. I think, well, I think we'll give it to Morrison. So then the next award before the Sean Connery one is the James Cosmo Award. Now, the easy thing to do would be to give it to Cosmo, and probably Cosmo should win it, but I think at the time that Braveheart came out, I think there's a there's a case for Peter Mullen if you just look at it at the time the movie came out, because he's just done Shallow Grave, then he's in Braveheart, mm. and then, of course... A few months later, he appears in Trainspotting. So three big Scot- three big Scottish films in a row, Peter Mullins and every one of them. Would there be a case for Alex Norton? God, he see we him. haven't even mentioned Alex know, Norton. He's, yeah, but he's in it. I know. You have to see him. He's like, <laughs> I mean, I had to go back and like look for him. <laughs> I'm happy to give it to Peter Mullen. I don't think that he necessarily gets it. I th- obviously, Cosmo gets it because he's a... Because he's one of the one of the principles in the film, and it's Cosmo, right? But I think you know, for the time, for the mid nineties, as a case for Peter Mullen, and then finally our Sean Connery Awards, also known as Who Got to Go Home and Fuck the Prom Queen, also known as Who Won the Movie. Who'd you give it to? This was the award I struggled with the most, right. and I really struggled because obviously Gibson wins Best Director, Best yeah. Picture, Gibson, but can't give it to Gibson. <laughs> and I thought about James Cosmo as well because yeah. Cosmo is he's fucking incredible in this film and he's yeah. so good I'm glad you said that because it's given me an excuse to bring up something that I didn't bring up earlier that I forgot about. Another scene that I got really emotional watching is James Cosmo's death scene after the Battle oh. of the Falkirk when he when he's at the camp and he's he's slipping away and he's talking to Hamish. I was blubbing my eyes out watching that back. And I must have seen it like a, a dozen times at least. I might have changed my mind actually because I was thinking about giving it to Brendan Gleeson as Hamish. Yeah. Because if you think about Braveheart, you think about Mel Gibson as William Wallace, mm-hmm. but the next thing you think about is Hamish, really. If you yeah. think about Braveheart, it, it, it's Hamish. He's in, he's, he's in the whole story. He's in the youth scene. He's in. He's with Will Wallace the whole way, and he's with Bruce years later. But he's, he's in the last shot of the film, is he not? When he or the second to last shot of the film, when he throws Wallace's sword onto the field at uh, Bannockburn. Um, yeah, well, he throws the sword, and then they charge. Yeah. And then you, I think maybe the last Short, person I mean, you see is maybe one of the English kings, like his face. And then you see, yeah, it must be. I, th- I think the last shot is um, the Bruce, so after Hamish hurls the sword, I think the last shot is the Bruce kind of bringing his sword down and then all the Scottish and then you see them yeah. charging. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the last um, shot. I'm tempted to give it to Gleason, but actually, no, I'm giving it to Cosmo. Cosmo, to Cosmo. for me, wins the film. Yeah. Hot, hot take. Okay. I've got a similarly hot hot take. I would maybe give it to James Horner for the score. I think I think Ooh. it's a brilliant film, but there's something, they mentioned it earlier on, there's something about the score 
in the and it, it's been stuck in my head all week. I just yeah. I can hear it just running over in my head all week. But his score just it just elevates it to I don't know. I, don't, I, I honestly I, I didn't realize just how much I liked the score of this film until I rewatched it for the Swally. It's brilliant, and it's been used for other movies. Like it's it appears in a couple other movies. Like sometimes I think sometimes they use it. They used it in trailers for movies that didn't have the score finished yet, but were similarly yeah. sort of epic, uh, grand films. You know, but I think it's brilliant. I seem to remember, and one of our mutual friends will love this, I think they did a dance remix of this tune. They did, yeah. And I seem to remember, I think I, I don't know if I had it, but I listened to it. I think I might have owned it, actually. Um, But yeah, it was like a dance remix of the Braveheart tune. It was the era. It was the era of dance remixes of famous songs and It would have been about 98, 99 it came out, I think. But yeah, there was a, there was definitely a dance remix of this. And it was on the, do you remember the, I can't remember the dance label studio, but it was like the purple background with the the white cross with the black circle. Fucking no idea, mate. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind. We'll have dance music fans going crazy at us right now. Yeah. But there was a some sort of dance studio that had that kind of label, and they definitely did a, a remix of Braveheart as a dance tune. I'll try and find it. I'll send it well, to we, you. I mean, we, we could ask our mutual friend who is a big fan of dance music, but of course he only listens to brand new stuff, so he's not likely to know, you know. He does. Well, you know what? I'm going to send, I'm going to find that tune. I'll send it to you and then we'll ask him if he knows it and we'll expose him. We'll expose anyway. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, I, I mean, I think it's not often that Cosmo would get, would, would win an award like the coveted Sean Connery Award for a movie. But I think he deserves to win it in this. Because, I mean, most big films that Cosmo appears in, he's, he's not in them for very long. I mean, like, he's not in The Outlaw King for very long. Spoilers. Um, but, you know, he is, he's essentially one of the principals in this movie. And every scene he's in, he's got some fantastic lines, like, you know, some men are bigger than others. Has your mother been telling stories about me, boy? For example, is an absolute belter. So I'm, I'm more than happy to give it to James Cosmo, but I would maybe give a special mention to James Horner for his amazing evocative score. Well, we'll so, give it to the Jameses. We'll give it to the two Jameses for making the film. Um, so we've done Braveheart because this was our 25th uh, episode already flown by and we wanted to do something special for the 25th I think they don't come much more special than Braveheart but for our next episode uh, which will be out in two weeks after you listen to this one I've chosen another classic well considered Scottish cinema and it's 1973's uh, starring the equaliser himself Edward Woodward the Wicker Man oh wow and I think it's oh. the first first horror we've had I think isn't it um, yeah yeah that would be the first horror Calibre can't really be considered a horror it's more of a, a kind of thriller, thriller. yeah Oh, oh, yeah, beauty, the Wicker Man. I get to do my, uh, why does Edward Woodward have so many Ds in his name? <laughs> why? Why does it? Because otherwise he'd be called Ewar Woodward. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, oh, so, wow. I, I genuinely, I can't remember the last time I watched the Wicker Man. It must be, oh, yeah, at least 20 years ago. A long time for me as well. It's, I mean, I, I was able to watch Braveheart with my daughters and they were quite interested there. As they get older, they're becoming a bit more interested in their heritage and stuff, their Scottish heritage. So they were quite interested in seeing it. The Wicker Man, I think I'll be watching all on my own. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't think I'll be able to convince my wife to watch The Wicker Man. I'll see. Actually, okay. I'll give it a try. We'll yeah. see. Cool. So, what what do people do if they want to get in touch with us at the Culture Spotlight, Nikki? Okay, fantastic. Thank you, everyone, very much for listening. And if you would like to get in touch with us, then please follow us on Instagram at culture swally pod and you can follow us on twitter as well at swally pod and if you want to email us with anything that you would like us to review or any news stories that you've seen you'd like us to follow then please email us on culture swally at gmail.com and greg we have a website now as well What's the details of the website? The website, you can find us at cultureswallyblog.com. There's links to all the episodes, including this one, and links to some of our favourite news stories that we have read over the last 25 episodes. And we've got a bit of a Pretend Scots page where we sort of rank and review uh, our favourite Pretend Scottish people doing accents. Obviously, Mel will be going up this week. I guess we need to put Brendan Gleeson up as well, and maybe even Catherine McCormick. Uh, depending on how much time we've got we'll get there eventually but yeah you can find us there if you've got if you want to suggest something for us to review maybe something that we've not seen or something that we've not thought of then you can contact us through the website with your details and if we think it's good we'll review it on a future episode of the podcast fantastic well thanks very much greg i'll look forward to watching the wicker man indeed until next time until next time 